Podcast that officially declares the year 2020 as over. That is right. You've made it a few <laughs> crazy weeks, and you were like, these weeks seem weirdly crazy like 2020 was, not like 2021 at all. That's our fault. We held back the turning of the year specifically to bring you the Fighting in the War Room a Top 10s podcast. If this is your first time joining us for a Top 10 episode, welcome. These are structured differently than our other podcasts and are uh, very long. We're going to um, not have any surprise for you, the listener. If you look at your podcasting device right now, you will see the layout of the show, counting down from tens to ones, and what we all picked for those movies. Or if don't, you don't look. Look Leave at a it, surprise. Don't do it. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> you don't have to look. But if you do, it's there. Uh, you could skip around. Otherwise, if you're just going to go straight through with us, here's how it's going to work. We're going to talk about the movies we have picked for our 10 through 1 slots. I picked a full 10 movies this year. So I'm going to be participating all the way through. Thank you, Digital Uh, Cinema. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's going to get a little bit of time to talk about why they put their movie in that particular slot. Unless that particular movie shows up higher on somebody else's list. In which case, I will mention that we will be talking about it again. And we will wait to uh, discuss the movies that we have overlapped um uh, all at once for just like as a point of reference uh three of us the not david ehrlich people shared two movies uh in common that appear on all of our lists and then all four of us share an additional two movies in common that appear all on our lists that being said everything's in weird order and uh especially patches i think Throw some curveballs right at the top. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> that yeah, always, I, I, that yeah. always happens. Yeah. That always I happens. I went with Aquaman this... again. Sorry. <laughs> I watched Zach it Snyder's on HBO Aquaman. Max, and HBO Max was new. <laughs> I wonder what will be this year's Foxcatcher. I look forward what to What will be this year's Foxcatcher? telling us. Um, it was almost me putting Mank in the number 10 slot because I love David Fincher, but then, you know, doing a, a, some soul searching and deciding not to put uh, Mank there. But Patches, before we get surfing. started, Sorry. <laughs> before we get started, uh, you wanted to have a moment to talk about how maybe this year's lists might be a little different uh, just before we get started. Oh, well, we're pretty I, much I was just all movies here on the way out from everybody. If it, if it felt ultimately like a different kind of year. Um, I mean, we talked extensively about this throughout the year, I suppose. But yeah, it's, um, it, for anyone just joining up for the first time, 2020 was weird. I don't know if everyone's aware of <laughs> it what was, happened last year. There was some strangeness year. going on. There weren't yeah. as many movies, perhaps. And, we can, can uh, someone uh, boil down to me just a few words what happened? Uh, Katie? Uh, I'm just going to start saying we didn't start the fire oh, like, like Trump who <laughs> yeah. pandemic too. Uh, yeah. I was, I'm sorry. I was busy watching the good fight for the last year. Right? <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you caught up. I mean, that's... I mean, I'm trying to figure that's out what memo, what memo 618 is right now. That, movie, that, that show would absolutely be on my top 10. Um, I'm doing David a horrible job of, of keeping us on, on track. <laughs> I'm not the captain now. Um, yeah, no, my, my reflection was it's been such a uh, an interesting year, not just because of how jumbled 
the release schedule is. I mean, good movies came out. Good movies came out. We'll be talking about them on the podcast. I just, I found myself in the days leading up to this show kind of reflecting on uh, me attempting to make my top 10, me feeling like I didn't see enough and that I was never going to see enough. And I, I'm, I'm transcending that FOMO and transcending that feeling like I needed to see enough. I'm, I'm just not going to. And what was interesting about 2020 is not only did the movies get jumbled, but my experience watching movies got totally jumbled and fucked. Like, Going to the movies was a time that I could put on my schedule. I could walk away from my family for a few hours and go watch a movie and see movies. And, like, I could be dedicated to that. You and got the gift of abandoning me. your wife and child for a yes. couple hours. Wow. I mean, I th- it's, a, it's an important thing to do. I think everyone needs to do it. And that's one I of the know. hardships. Um, and, yeah, David, you're, you've been a pandemic parent for the most part. So you don't even know what it's like to abandon your, your family and go do something else. It feels great. I, I think about that a lot. That it's, it's, I think about how we were really given an opportunity to acclimate to parenthood in that way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the other thing for me was uh, really in 2020 kind of coming into a moment where I felt my life and uh, my purpose in my job transitioning. Uh, when we started this podcast 10 years ago, I believe it's 10 years ago because we yeah. did Rabbit Hole and it's that was like, 2011. It would, I can't believe we going. just like full on missed our 10th anniversary. Dave would have to like – No, this will be the – this year will be the 10th anniversary. Sometime this year will be our 10th anniversary. Oh, I thought it was 2020. So okay, no, this year. So it, it'll be like October-ish this year. Yes, so look yes. Forward Whenever – Rabbit Hole was our first impromptu podcast attempt. Um But anyway, I I have just become someone who, uh, you know, David is through thick and thin reviewing everything, um, and it's amazing, and his list will always be the most, like, you've seen it all, and you're, and you're, and you're, and yet I still feel like I've missed so much, especially (laughs) this year. Uh, I really do. I'd be um, curious what didn't, yeah, what you didn't see and what didn't make your list. Maybe at the end we can just rattle some things off. But I mean, for me, I, I've really come to my own as like I'm trying to give other people a chance. I'm trying to enable writers. I'm an editor. I'm, I'm like helping run a site, and I see fewer movies than I ever did before, and I, I listen to a lot more people about their takes than ever before, and try and get other people's opinions out there. Um, so while I was staring down my list and being like, man, this is going to be a failure. Like I, I'm, I. I'm not going to put some major things on my list because I just haven't seen them. I kind of got over that feeling like every there's so many people out there who've got a chance to see so much more and read every list, read every person, read and and listen to every podcast. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm letting <laughs> climb go of every that. mountain. Yeah, climb every mountain. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> no. I think that's I, it really... worries me with this podcast that I don't. I won't have enough to say in the like as we go forward and we've been talking about it and just like I don't. I don't know what to do. I'm I, I I'm not going to be like I was five years ago even seeing everything and feeling like I have a take on everything. Um, I think so. this is an important uh, development for you to podcast through actually because it's not like what you're experiencing is. <laughs> not what the majority of our audience goes through. Mm-hmm. So, like, when we started, I, I mean, granted, we still have, you know, our our film school listeners, I'm sure. But when we started, it was basically exclusively that slash other people that, like, we knew in journalism. And surely they're not all, you know, Phillips Jordan Hoffmaning, you know, still <laughs> late this, this into their lives. So Hi, I think, you know... I think it's perfectly valid, Patches. That thing that you were feeling, I feel almost every year because I just, sure. by the nature of, like, for five years now, I've seen less movies than all of you. But what I saw people who uh, adhere to the calendar deadline to get their top ten lists out, and I read all the top ten lists, I was surprised uh, by how many opinions I had, uh, both about the ones that I didn't see and things that I wanted to see, and a lot of movies I got to see in those uh, two weeks. 
uh, and um, how some people would put something at the top of their list that I was like, I can't believe that's a critical opinion. So really, I think it takes all types, and I'm glad there are four of us, because it definitely, we're going to have all all takes. Well, and I think uh, that Dave, like I have, and maybe all of us, but David, I've just been able to see more this year, access-wise, than any year in, like, at least since I had kids, like, maybe even before that. Like, the ability to see stuff, the windows have collapsed in a way that we've talked about why it's unhealthy, but, like, Minari playing, like, a gazillion regional film festivals that you could watch from your house allowed a bunch of people to see a movie that otherwise would not, would barely exist at this point. So there's been, there's really an argument for how that has worked and how it has allowed people like me who have kids or live in a small city or Dave, like to just access movies. Yeah, I mean, it allowed people who had their eye on the ball and care about the stuff and were aggressive. I think most people. Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it's most not like... people look at it, feel like I was just judging by the reactions to the top 25 video that I posted today. You know, Minari is one of those movies that, that people lament not having been able to see. Sure. Uh, and even though it's still coming down the pike, but. Um, it was definitely something that like, you know, you got, you got out of this year in the movies, what you put into it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah. if you are me and you are interested in this stuff, but like in North Carolina, the ability, the options were much broader. But I, I'll admit to the opposite. Like I, my 2020 sucked my soul out. Like I spent a lot of time on the couch being like, I, I know I should watch these films. Oh, of course. I, I need to watch poop i need to watch the bad <laughs> stuff for my brain um and i definitely didn't go the extra mile as much as i maybe normally would if i was hey i'll go to the little screening room and seeing a thing i'll take a stab at a romanian film or something i just couldn't make that time under these circumstances and, and it hurt, hurts me a little bit but i mean the, uh, yeah. the the thing that i came around to making my list specifically this year was like fuck it this is my podcast we've been doing this for 10 years yeah. i can put whatever i want on my list and i think that's a really <laughs> good feeling to have like i don't i don't owe a top 10 to anybody not like david making a video that people like anticipate like who cares only i care i'm putting what i want on my list and that's a good feeling and i have worked so hard over the years to insist and, and sort of teach people that the movies on the list, really the order of the movies on the list in particular does not matter to me <laughs> in, in <laughs> as much a way. I mean, like it, it's not arbitrary, but, uh, has to but, be a good video in the end. Yeah. I mean, th- that truly is more important to me because it comes down to ranking art. It is ultimately arbitrary and I'm trying to make something that can sort of stand on its own, but, but also, um, yeah, no, I don't know. I think it's just about highlighting the movies and you know, people can argue until they're blue in the face about what's seven versus what eight, what's eight. Uh, it doesn't matter as long as Foxcatcher isn't your number one. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to remove you from office. Yeah. And then I also think this is a good uh, thing. A lot of us, you know, Patches is talking about more maybe from a perspective of uh, trying to curate uh, movies to people. And we do do that service. But this year was a year that between you guys and my friend Kenny Miles here in Denver, every one of these movies, I was told, make time for this. And I did. So uh, if you find something on this list that you like, use that as an excuse to get your friends into it. And if you like us and you hear something that you won't seem like watching, take that as a recommendation to get these movies out. Because what, was, it's... Uh, what was Kenny Miles' number one movie of the year? Oh, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> talked to him about uh, his like year-long, year-long ranking. I mean, I could tweet at him and he'll probably, he'll probably do it. <laughs> we'll do it. I will do it right here. But you first... You can't miss Kenny Miles. I'm going to do this, but first, uh, we're going to kick it off with our tens. Uh, now, I was assuming the order would be Katie, Patches, myself, and then David. Is there any objections before we move forward? Sounds sure. fair. Excellent. Good. <laughs> Everybody knows the format. Here we go. 
For number 10, Katie has picked a movie that is appears on all of our lists, so we will not uh, be discussing it too Blood much now. Shot. <laughs> Katie, what was your number 10 pick? My number 10 pick is the movie on this list I have watched the most recently, so that means it might move up at some point, but it is Time, the documentary by Garrett Bradley that everyone said, you have to watch this, and it is on Amazon Prime, so everyone... True. Well, okay, if you hate Amazon, which you have good reason to, maybe you won't have access to it, but it is very accessible. It is very short. It is a stunning documentary that is about imprisonment, but has a lot of life in it and is not necessarily uplifting, but is so full of people and the joy that they can bring into their lives. And the characters, particularly the main character who we'll talk about later, is just one of the most astonishing people I've ever seen on film. So, uh, But given what we were just saying about how uh these lists reflect our four very different approaches to the movie landscape this year the fact that this movie is on all four of our lists should tell you something yeah uh and yeah wait i'm the only person who gets to talk about it how it's about a woman who's raising a bunch of sons and how that was particularly inspiring to me so but like so that, many sons so well, like, yeah, six, yeah, like, like a lot of sons. Sons. brilliant sons the sons I mean, yeah. are such Shining yeah. light. Oh my, yeah. Light. No, I got halfway through this movie. I was like, what can I do to raise children <laughs> who are like half as good as this? And like, she's done it by herself because her husband's been in prison their entire lives. Like, I don't stand a chance. Um, but this woman, Fox Rich, is, uh, is a superstar. So I don't know. Yeah. I shouldn't talk too much about time yet. We'll be back to talk about Fox Rich in time. of time. <laughs> Later on. At least three more times. Uh, but Patch is always coming in with uh, an interesting number 10 pick. Uh, This one is, uh, I think you pitched it to the podcast a couple of times. Uh, And it it sounds a little extreme. Is it The Boys Season (laughs) 2? Yeah, The Boys Season 2. We should do a top 10 TV list sometime. We all watch a lot of TV. Maybe that's something we could do later in the year. Um, No, this is something I I thought was going to be a guaranteed like top three for Katie. This is Possessor, the latest (laughs) film from Brandon Cronenberg uh, about an assassin played by Andrea Riceborough who hacks takes over people's bodies uh, to complete her assassination assignment. So she'll, like, download herself into someone's brain, they'll pick up a gun, shoot some people, and then she'll shoot herself in the head, and then she'll return to her body. It's a job, you know? It's just a job. And uh, Cronenberg's film is dealing with a lot of those, like, kind of mundane but pressing questions about uh, not only, obviously, like, gender and identity, the stuff that would happen if Andrea Riceborough downloaded herself into Chris Abbott, who is the main target of the movie, but uh, deals a lot with, like, class and economic warfare. Um, there's There's kind of we brush against the bigger world the bigger sci-fi world that's on display in in possessor that's like kind of an amazon uh, i don't know big tech uh, locked and loaded just horrifying dystopia where we all are drones working for big tech companies which is probably not that far off um but then of course you have the technology that that andrew riceborough is using to download herself into her her targets and get totally jumbled. I mean, as much as I'm talking about the themes here, I'm enthralled by the 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 quality of the images. Just true exploitation, true horror. Watching minds meld with minds, bodies melt with bodies, blood spurting everywhere, people getting impaled and shot, and just grossness with purpose, with intent, with 
cinematic flair. Um, the movie is very much like an anti-inception. There's not a lot of rules and character dimension or nerd-ass shit, as we will sometimes talk about. That is not <laughs> in, in defiance of Aquaman, my, my joke, but my actual pick from, what was that? Was that two years ago now? Jeez. Um, like this, there's no rules here. It's, this is it's the rare movie that could have probably used a little bit more nerd-ass shit. No, no, this is good. We just we get just enough. It sends the mind racing, the imagination racing, and I would have watched it again if I wasn't gonna like throw up at the end. It's definitely an NC seventeen. The movie got released as Possessor Uncut. I ha- <laughs> could not tell you what is uncut or like what they changed. No I have been curious about. It this. I, t- I have no idea. I have not gone the extra like the pure marketing mumbo jumbo. But yeah, yeah, it's great. Just get people in the door. Make it sensational as possible. Um, but I, I think Cronenberg, Brett Cronenberg, you know, he lives in the shadow of his father, but he's doing something different here. This is not like homage to his father's seventies and eighties work. This is something. It is kind of like retro surrealism in the vein of, of Mandy um, or uh, God, what was Mandy guys? Beyond the black rainbow. The there's, black rainbow. there's definitely a beyond the black rainbow. <laughs> yeah, so vibe if you like beyond the, the black rainbow, scenes, you will dig possessor. Scenes. I don't know. I, I got sucked into this movie. And of course this is a classic film festival experience for me. I saw this disgusting, joyous, exploitive film at like, 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. at Sundance earlier this year. Oh, back when man. The world was still partially together. Now, doesn't so. that sound fun? It oh stuck with God. me, man. I loved it. I, I was just going to gonna say, I've, every single movie on this list I've seen inside my house because I haven't been to a movie and I didn't go to a movie in 2020, but I forgot you guys had a whole festival's worth of stuff. Yeah, a bunch of my movies are going to be Sundance holdovers, mostly because that's when I was alive. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. They persisted. Like, these are the movies, like, thank God for independent film this year because this independent film kind of saved, like, there were actual new releases. They A lot of them came to streaming, but yeah. there were still things to pluck from Sundance and, and kind of dole out throughout the year. It's kind of amazing how many great movies there were that were released this year, even if so many of them uh, came out or first premiered on the festival circuit last year, because there wasn't a can this year and the fall festivals, the Oscar season that go around with them were muted and had far fewer films um, than they would have otherwise. And a lot of the, the, the bigger uh, movies and the things that were a little bit more high profile have been kicked down the road till next year. And so even so, I mean, some of the movies on our list today might be a little bit smaller, so to speak, but there are just so, so many. Yeah. Uh, for my number 10 pick, uh, there are a lot of things that occupied this spot. This is my sort of like honorable mention spot, considering there were a lot of movies that uh, got here to the bottom that I thought I would talk about that I didn't. Um, but what I did come up with was soul because i am nodding um, i'm nodding i decided to pick movies that i actually had uh, emotional reactions to over uh movies that i found something uh technically great about but maybe uh landed flat and soul is the most emotional i've been i've related to a movie without crying basically everything else that it's a drama uh on this uh hooked me in a crying way except for one movie which is just so tense and so real that it's made it on there but i'm gonna put soul in if you want to uh, know why i think it has some amazing work forward in uh as dave would have me highlight 3d animation and if you would like to go back a couple episodes we did a whole review episode about it uh where i said i still don't forgive the body swapping comedy in the middle but don't worry 
All of these things will come back up later on on my list. I just want to plant my flag. My number 10 is Soul. I debated uh, I debated putting Soul on for a long time, so I'm really glad you did. Yeah. It was in like a spot that like when I first did my list, just like off the top of my head, Hamilton was in my like 10th spot. And I'm like, that, that seems like a lie. Like that feels like a lie <laughs> when I write it out. So uh, Soul, though, doesn't. Uh, I'm still uh, way into the... Uh, Nine Inch Nails uh, Boat Chase Through the Sand After Before Life Zone uh, track into it. So, uh, David has picked a ten, uh, number 10 movie that also does not appear on anybody else's lists, but it, in terms of soul to possessor, seems a little bit more towards the disturbing side, but also very personal. David, what would it be? Uh, I, th- I think it's uh, Swallow. Is that, that, right? is, that is correct. <laughs> I'm going, going Sorry, off the top, and like going off the top of like, the dome here. Your, your clip <laughs> slash the trailer for this movie made me go. That looks really interesting, and I will probably not watch Ooh, it. Oh yeah, uh, no, Swallow that was a hard weird. no for me in that video. Swallow is a movie that premiered at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival, which it promptly won, I believe. Um, and uh, it is the feature debut of somebody named Carlo Mirabella Davis, and it stars. I mean, we may have talked about this podcast, or may have merited a brief mention once upon a time. It stars Haley Bennett as a sort of Todd Haynesian housewife somewhere along the Hudson River, uh, who's married to a, a Patrick Bateman adjacent, you know, bland, handsome white guy uh, who works in finance or something. It's not really important, and she's sort of this this kept woman at home. And uh, they keep the idea is for her to have a baby, and she doesn't really seem on board with that plan. And she develops uh, a, a a term that I had on the tip of my tongue, pun very much intended, uh, but I have forgotten what it is. But uh, she swallows shit. She swallows a lot of shit. Uh, she loves putting shit in her mouth and swallowing it. Uh, and I'm talking about thumbtacks and needles and. Oh, uh, oh. All sorts of other things that are actually then... good practice for having a baby because they do all that shit. What they try, they try to babies eat thumbtacks. Yeah, babies try to. <laughs> where, why, where are all the thumbtacks in your house that babies are eating? I mean, mostly it's plugs for us to be honest. But Katie anyway. has like every every other wall is a yarn murder wall you, for some subject. How are they going to learn not to unless you surround them with the temptation? But the it is a there is an element of body horror. I think that the most obvious parallel is definitely safe with Todd Haynes' film from the nineties. But this is much less about the sort of antiseptic environment and more about uh, female agency, particularly in a, a patriarchal system and the way how gracefully this movie transfers for, uh, transitions from that body horror element of her getting these uh, like her stomach pumped and all these metal objects being taken out of it um, to a story that's you know fundamentally about abortion. Um, is really interesting and it ends on, it starts in such an antiseptic note in the sterilized environment of their house and it ends in a much more organic real world setting. It's a sort of like slow de-evolution, uh, you know, down from the, the airlessness of the moneyed world where she lives and into the real world. And uh, it's, it's really brilliantly done in a year where there were a number of striking films that were uh, about, you know, either primarily or, secondarily about abortion um and Haley bennett is, gives this really incredible like thawing stepford wife kind of the performance uh and it's just a really keenly observed sharp movie that uh i, I think 
at the time, even even a year and a half ago, when I first saw it, it felt more radical than it does now um, because I, I don't want to give away the ending, but it did something that I couldn't remember a movie in the Western world doing. But uh, now I guess it's you know it, it is a good thing becoming a little bit more accepted on on screen. Um, but I'm very uh, curious what you're talking about. I mean, talking it, whatever it's. This is spoiler related, but it, like a movie, it's very rare to see a movie that uh, where the main character has an abortion and it is presented as a positive thing. Sure, um, sure. In any context, I mean, I'm not talking about it in a vacuum, but like for this character in their circumstances, the evaluation that they've made for their circumstances. I mean, like it is. Uh, it's the obvious child. Yes, but <laughs> with a very I feel time. like obvious child did not have the same. You know, whatever. It's it, this is a whole conversation. Choose your words um, carefully here. Obviously, yeah. I mean, it's wonderful. I, I really like Obvious Child, but I, I think, um, and I'm not talking about a movie where someone is like giddy to go to the doctor at the abortion clinic and and have this experience. But I think that presents the uh, woman's right to choose, that the option, that the agency over their own body as such an um, unambiguously positive force. Um, and that I guess was present in Obvious Child, but it's done with a sobriety here that felt different and new to me and then is obviously uh you know something that resonates even stronger and something like never rarely sometimes always which we'll talk about later but this is a a a movie that backs its way into this conversation in a really fascinating way and has uh, some some icky fun on the way there and uh ends up being this really touching and powerful human drama um kind of unexpectedly and uh it's it's really good. It's been on streaming services of all kinds probably for a while now. Uh, it's called Swallow. Swallow. That's the number 10s. So moving on to number nine. Katie, unfortunately, has picked another movie that appears later on our list. Katie, what was your number nine pick? This is going to keep happening, I assume. Uh, I picked Palm Springs. Speaking of Sundance holdovers, a movie I didn't get to see at Sundance because I wasn't there, uh, but I saw it in my house. I've actually now seen it twice because I did an interview with Chris Milioti in like December, and I had seen it in July, so I rewatched it, and it was a really great rewatch. I had new... The twist of Palm Springs, which, like, I guess is a twist, even though it's kind of the premise of the movie. Um, But even on a second rewatch, I still got a lot out of it. I'm always uh, really fond of movies that are just really well-structured. Like, the plot is tight. Like, every beat leads to another beat. I think I will kind of embrace a movie for having that even more than something that's, like, a little shapeless, but, like, more ambitious. And Palm Springs is really ambitious in addition to being, like, really tight, really funny. It's got these great performances from Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. Love, uh... A time travel thing. I'm really just going to say that. Um, yeah, I guess I'm not supposed to talk too much about Palm Springs yet, but I. Uh, it also was a really great movie to be able to watch inside your house about being stuck in a place that you can't get out of. It became thematically resonant even more than they ever expected. Yeah, it's going to get some pandemic points from uh, people down the list, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right, Patches. Once again, coming with a documentary that he's bang the drum for when he can on fighting in the war room uh traditionally but i guess a better question would be uh is this movie even better now than it was yeah given recent events do you think uh feel good man feels good man is uh even more important for 2020 uh yeah um at sundance i called it the most important political film of 2020 
Maybe still the most political. <laughs> that was a bold statement in January. My God. Um, I mean, it was. That's what. It, it really that's a silly thing down. to say. In January. <laughs> <laughs> that's it a, is. It's a kind of like dumbass thing that I would tweet that people would excoriate me for for years online. Yes, uh, this is why as lucky, long as I sail under rears. your cover, as long as you're only <laughs> yeah. I can get away with this stuff. I mean, I said it then because I really wanted people to take it seriously. Uh, both people who don't think twice about online life and how we got here, uh, all caps, uh, with with Trump, with MAGA, with the cult that exists right now. Uh, it's all entangled in the rise and fall of Pepe the Frog, in a way, uh, which seems so silly. It still sounds silly when you talk about it. And I and I called it the most important political film of 2020 because I want people to take this seriously. People like my my parents or people who don't who underestimate the power of the internet and the destructive forces that kind of lurk in its corners and how people created new religions in 4chan and and found meaning. Um, in the places that we think are just for like goofing off, <laughs> um, you know, feels good man is a documentary that follows Matt Fury who created Peppy the frog ages ago now, um, who you may see that character as a, as a distorted meme, but it started as a well-meaning laid back, like frat co- comic strip, essentially. Um, and the director, Arthur Jones, he actually is an illustrator animator. He was, he was a journalist for a while, kind of pivoted using all of his skills here to both like animate Pepe, bring him to life, like make him a real character and make him even more alive than Fury did on the page in those original comics to make the inevitable destruction of Pepe the Frog by being co-opted by disturbing people who wanted to recreate his image in in the most nightmarish of ways um, and for Pepe to eventually become a beacon for Trump and become a beacon for MAGA and white nationalism and now Pepe is on you know is on the the hate symbol list of the anti-defamation league like this is psychotic what's happened um, and why I think everyone kind of knows but really needs to know and feels good man does it in a way that is traditional. I mean, it's a Talking Heads documentary, which I don't usually go for. And I, I the days go by. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> there was a Talking Heads documentary this year. There was. We'll get there. <laughs> capital T. Capital. Um, but yeah, so so feels good, man. It, it's out there streaming. I still think it's really important. Uh, yeah, it's funny. One thing I was I was going to put the hunt on my top ten list. Seriously, mm-hmm. considering it, uh, I really think it's a fantastic film. My wife urged me not to like get into why uh, on a podcast a week after insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol um, and everything has completely gone to hell. Um, so I, I'm not going to talk about the hunt and why I think it's good right now. So you but pick I will Pepe say, the Frog instead. I will say. <laughs> The Pepe the Frog documentary explains everything, and it's only going to get worse from here, and we need to take the internet seriously, and QAnon and shit is not a joke, and this is the movie that will tell you exactly why. And I, and I, I, really I will say, up in it. I will say that after the riots at the Capitol, I did, like, not that I thought the internet was a joke, but I did kind of have the sense, I think a lot of people do, being like, well, there's the shit on the internet, and then, like, sometimes it bleeds over in real life, but mostly it's, like, shit that exists on the internet, and I think last week was just, like, literally the internet, like, coming to life and breaking yeah. windows, I mean, I think, and there was, and there's something really terrifying about that that I think has made me want to watch that movie. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the Pepe the Frog 
Doc uh, feels good man, you know, in, in accordance with the things that we saw happen in the Capitol last week are proof of one of the big lessons the last four years, which is that things can be ridiculous and terrifying at the yeah. same time. Yep. Oh, man. Feels good, man. Uh, titled very, very ironic. All right. Um, uh, mine pick next. My pick is up next. And uh, I had a little bit of debate uh, with people before the top tens about how to uh, categorize uh, small acts. And I watched uh, Education and liked it, but did not get around to uh, the final one, Alex Weedle. So I decided that rather than just assume Alex Wheel was on par enough to not like sink everything else, I would pick a movie from Small Axe uh, that I think is uh, the best of them for me and maybe a good one to get started uh, for you. This is uh, Steve McQueen's Small Axe series tells West Indian stories uh, set between 1969 and 1982. I picked West Indian people in in London. In London. Sorry. West Indian culture in London. Uh, I picked uh, Mangrove, which is the story of a West Indian restaurant and uh, the police shutting it down, and then a trial uh, that results from a quote-unquote riot that takes place afterwards that was most likely started by the police. If it sounds very similar to the trial of Chicago 7, that's because this is the better version of that movie. Um, and I really like it as a opening statement uh, for small acts, but just in terms of a singular movie. It's uh, very intimately shot in certain parts, like Lover's Rock. It has uh, large scenes dealing with the police, like Red, White, and Blue. And it has a lot of characters that I enjoy that um, I think uh, definitely lean towards uh, the problem with the children uh, in, in, in education and I don't know what Alex Weedle is about, but assuming it's about an activist that like Wikipedia sort of also introduces. <laughs> I think he's an author. Introduces that. Yeah, he's an author. author. There we go. Uh, um, also introduces like that uh, section of the thinkers uh, is another one, a group in Mangrove, or in that case, uh, the Black Panthers who are trying to push uh, the movement forward. I think it also benefits from being chronologically the earliest and part of a five-part series because I don't think it has to close all of the narrative loops uh, that it opens. Uh, but I do think there are uh, certain parts in this movie, uh, especially uh, the main performance by Sean Parks, uh, that um, really made it stand out as my favorite. Of, but it also uh, stands by itself, I, would, I think. I, I imagine if you only saw a mangrove, you would get, you would A, feel like it's a satisfying story, and I think get a lot of the sense of the, what the project is. Yeah, I think if I if Mangrove existed on its own, I would still really like it. I'm just not sure it would necessarily be on my list. Hmm. Uh, I like this as a as a gateway film, and if you like it, awesome. You saw a you know a small axe, um, enjoy. And if you want to keep going, I think going on from Mangrove uh, works really well. So that's why I picked a Mangrove. Uh, it's another Amazon Prime joint. You could stream it uh, now. David picked a film that I just ran out of time and did not get to see. So unlike Minari, was not boxed out by some sort of weird thing. I just never got around to it. David, tell us about your number nine pick. Uh, yeah, this is one of the easier films. to. Well, maybe not. I don't know. It's been available for a long time, but only, I guess, on HBO and its related channels, which not everyone gets. Uh, Bad Education, which is another 2019 premiere that 
came in real handy, uh, at least for list-making purposes in 2020. Uh, Corey Finley's follow-up to Thoroughbreds, starring Hugh Jackman as the, probably the most exciting. I, I, you got to say one of the most exciting movies ever made about a uh, Long Island superintendent um, and dealing but with but a high uh, school budget crisis. Yeah, a high school budget crisis. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, it's pretty wild stuff. A uh, true story of the largest embezzlement scheme in the history of America's public high school system, um, and uh, at least prior to Betsy DeVos. Boom. Uh, <laughs> All right, be Betsy. Yeah. She, did they kill her when she left? <laughs> <laughs> they sank her yacht. Oh, yeah, that's true. Retire in peace. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, and uh, this is a movie I'm sure we've talked about. It is, uh, it, it's really, you know, I was thinking about it today in the most embarrassing terms, that it really is about the lessons that we teach our kids and about the things that America conditions them to think that they should aspire to and can also get away with uh, or not. Um, in this case, it's, it's this very sort of venal uh, man, veneer of success. He's closeted. He has this whole other life. It's a very tragic story to me in a way because he is uh, Frank Tessone, Hugh Jackman, in, in what I think for my money is the best performance of his career. Um, it's so and, definitely the best performance yeah. of his I mean, career. I mean, he's given a number of them that really resonate with me. I'm thinking mostly of like the prestige and even, uh, I mean, The Greatest Showman isn't really in the same league, but also good. Different way. Uh, but the prestige really, I mean, amazing. Um, and uh, there's one other. It's not Logan. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's it's the story of this guy who is put in a situation where he has this sort of idea of what success looks like and this, this need to uh, emanate it at all times. Um, and it doesn't allow for him to be authentic. And that causes this kind of uh, implosive string of behavior that starts long before the movie does and uh it, he it, that movie is definitely sort of goading you to have sympathy for the devil in the way but um you know in, in a time where we i think are very uh black and white about people and their morality i mean this is a really fascinating character study of someone who is uh, all too human and that's why they find themselves doing some dirty deeds and bringing a lot of other people down with them um and it's just brilliantly well done. It, it builds uh, improbably, given the, the stakes of the story, to this sort of like cross-country montage that uh, really broke my heart um, and makes a phenomenal use of Dido, uh, which it's a real blast from the past. The movie and there's is, a great, um, isn't it, a Fatboy Slim song in, a, in another key moment? Well, it's... Uh, Moby is Moby. Yeah, yeah, sorry, another because um, it's set in two thousand two or so. so yeah, I, like... I, you're actually you're even more right because the the scene in question is where the Moby song plays. It's over the end credits that the Diado song plays. Ah, um, yes, and uh, it's just really beautifully done. It's got the same sort of like keen, darkly comic, rigid style that uh, Corey Finley brought to thoroughbreds mike mikowski uh who wrote it is somebody who went to the high school at the time this all went down in roslyn long island uh and certainly brings a really sharp sense of place and um of the drama and it's part of the story sort of told from the inside out from the the student newspaper um and one of the, the student journalists who brings down this entire administration much to frank Tasson's surprise uh it's just a really incredible story brilliantly told uh director and screenwriter who I think are going to go on to do even more great things. And uh, it's a shame that HBO of it all is, uh, as much as it may have given this movie uh, a greater reach more immediately than it might have had otherwise, um, 
it's a shame that it's sort of taken it out of our awards race anyway, because uh, I would love for Hugh Jackman to be in that conversation. He certainly deserves it for this. Yeah. You know what's great about movie. this movie that I hadn't thought about until you were saying it is that he is this like huckster who's like selling himself on things and he's cheating people and lying, but he's not really Trumpy at all. Like it's not about that. It's about like kind of a more fundamental American. That's such a of good point character. to have. Like, a, yes, finally a con man who is not at all Trumpian. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> worth pointing out. It's really it's nice. It's like a really um, kind of sui gener- uh, generous character. So yeah, I really love bad education. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely, he's vain, but it's in a very different way yeah. from Trump. Um, yeah, and there, I mean, because he's like, the whole point, right, is that he is not this raging narcissist, that like there is a, a beating and brittle heart under this this yeah. primmed and plucked uh, veneer. And um, it, he is sort of, you do feel like, even though he made immoral decisions and deserves to go to jail for them, which he does, uh, you know, the... You, you don't feel like the decisions he makes are all that far afield from ones that you know you may make in the same situation. Uh, yeah. But Allison uh, Jane yeah, is also great on it. She's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> all right, it's time for number eights. Um, uh, interesting things about the number eight category. It again, it's our third straight uh, number that is going to include a documentary. And this one is the only one that Katie gets to talk fully about her movie, and the rest of us don't. Katie, what'd you pick for number eight? Wait, is is this the only one that I'm the only one who chose? Oh, no, but just that, like, you guys aren't going to talk about later. Okay, hang on. Now I Everybody else has a double pick now for Now I understand eight. the format. Okay, so I chose Boys State, a documentary that is from A24 and Apple, I believe. Um, I feel like I was, like, so bowled over by this movie, and I feel like a lot of people watched it and were like, oh, my God, this is so scary. Look at all these boys who are, like, they're replicating the problem of adults, and, like, they're all, like, terrifying Republicans. And there is an element to that, too, but it's set at this American Legion camp in Texas where they basically, like, replicate the government. They have political parties, and then they have legislature and... You know, there's also a talent show because it's camp and you have these kids who are kind of like running and trying to like... Oh, the U.S. government has that too, don't we? Yeah, the talent show. Yeah, the annual House of Congress talent show. Um, And it's it's got... They pick their characters so well. You know, it's one of those movies where it like leads up to like the big governor's race at the end and they have chosen the right kids to follow into that governor's race moment. Um, And you've got like these kind of what you would expect from, like, white boy Texas Republicans who are, you know, there and talking, like, they all talk about abortion a ton, which is, like, almost hilarious for a bunch of, like, teenage boys to, like, really fixate on that. Um, but then you have these people like this character, uh, this person, uh, Stephen Garza, who runs for governor. He's this kind of, like, soft-spoken Mexican kid. He's not super wealthy. He is somewhat progressive, especially compared to the kids he's surrounded by. And he kind of has this slow rise. As, basically, as people kind of catch wind of how he is, like, the decent, thoughtful person who's in the mix here. Um, and then you've got this other kid, Renee, who becomes one of the party leaders and he's black and like pretty clearly gay and outspoken, but like they embrace him anyway. And just the way that it shows this range of how young boys can be and shows them kind of figuring out who they want to be, shows the awkward kids in the talent show, shows like the kid who was born disabled and he becomes kind of a political manager and he has like horrible, like non-existent beliefs who basically just trying to get power at all costs, but he's a fascinating character too. It has all the kind of necessary empathy you need for a movie like this. And especially for a movie dealing with kids. Um, and obviously I talk about it on the show all the time and I will continue to, I am interested in how you raise boys and how boys develop in this stupid country that we have. And I think boys state is such a 
uh, great and thoughtful look at how that happens. It doesn't really have any direct answers. It has like some kids who you want to root for and like want to see how powerful they they become. But it really just stands on its own as this look at this really unique ecosystem and how the problems of our real world are replicated. But like in some ways you you have hope because you feel like some of them have the power to fix it. Um, And so I think it was less terrifying to me about how all these young Republicans are made and more just like, all right, these kids, like give them the tools that they need. Let them like have them learn how to think for themselves in this week they spend at Boy State and then hand them the keys because they might actually be able to fix it after all. Can I so. just say how scary it was for me watching this, thinking of it just as a, like the most aggressive popularity contest ever. Yeah. It was like, be, the, the camp, it, it lasts for like a week. That's it. And yeah. so basically, as soon as you get there, you have to hit the ground running immediately currying favor with everyone else. Do you ever go? And, have yeah, you ever and, gone to a week-long camp? Did you ever go to a week-long camp? I went to like a up? two- or three-week camps, and they were all spectacular failures for me because, as yeah. listeners to this show might know, in the unlikely event that anyone ever comes to like me, it's only because I grow on them like a fungus over a long <laughs> period of time. And so, like, like, senior year of high school and college were big for me. Freshman year, those respective places, not so much. And, like, I... Like, I... I this is a nightmare, and obviously it's the more extroverted kids that do well um and i could just think about how i would spend the entire time just sort of fading into the wallpaper and uh you know trying to throw my lot in with the, with the best candidate but it was really anxiety God, producing giving for that. Me so many flashbacks i did a week-long <laughs> law camp when i was in ninth grade and all the kids were older and I just – I felt exactly that way. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't keep up. How am I supposed to make bond with these people in a week? I can't do it. Uh, wow. Anxiety, anxiety. So boys take gave great anxiety at too. I did, I, had, I, had, I did great at the – I did, went to nerd camp and it went – well, before that I went to like a standard like girls, like mountains, like camping camp and that didn't go so well. I was the mission control director at space camp the week I went. That's how <laughs> much I was in the fucking camp. Do people hook up at space camp? Uh, not in our age group, but above that, yes. Did people uh, get high this... at Space Camp? How old does Space Camp get? Uh, I think like above fourteen. There's a version of Space Camp there where they also like put you in a like a airplane fuselage and like crash you into water for an emergency landing and stuff. What? Holy shit! Like you could do the dangerous stuff to the kids over sixteen. It's like the twelve to fourteen year olds who are just like, eh, let them pretend to be in space. And that Whoa. was me. So it's like Apollo training during the day, snogging and drinking at night. Wait, uh, Dave, if uh, if something happened to some of your fellow counselors, did the necromancer uh, deal with it by flying up to the uh, enemy spaceship and blowing everyone into What the fuck are you, are you talking about Raised by Wolves right now? <laughs> He's, talking about... <laughs> He's talking about a weird hybrid of Raised by Wolves and the movie Space Camp, which actually isn't a horrible pitch. That'd be great. But that's not what that's, we're talking about right now. Kind of Skylines. Skylines. Three. That, that's a 2020 film. It is. They spelled it S K three lines. Patches, you get to bring up your number eight pick, but we will be talking about it more in detail later. Oh, really? How Thank are we God. still on number eight? Let's. I'm so, <laughs> pick we're right, speeding up. We're speeding. Up. Well, things are consolidated. Uh, this is not part of the topic. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm so glad that somebody else picked the nest. Sean Durkin's follow up to Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Um, I didn't know what to expect going into this. This is another like 8 a.m. at the Mark Theater at Sundance, which is actually a tennis court that they turned into a movie theater. Isn't it a uh, racket court? Racquetball it's court? A, you're right. It's a racket club. I'm sorry. It's a racket club. Uh, a, a movie I knew nothing about going in. I was a big fan of Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Sean Durkin kind of went away 
and did some British television. His his filmmaking group made some other movies. Uh, Simon Killer, what's his name, has done lots of things. Um, we talked about Devil All the Time or whatever that fucking terrible Netflix movie was. <laughs> um, but Sean Durkin take, took his time and came back and made like an 80s era drama about wealth and inflated ego and clashing family dynamics that was just such a stage for Jude Law and Carrie Coon that I, I mean I don't I was gonna say whatever misgivings I had about the plot I didn't really have any misgivings it's like pretty standard cookie cutter kind of stuff in terms of uh, prying at Reagan era economic life and um and just wanting wealth more than anything in the world something it's that's all too familiar in news headlines today um but man i just two great performances by two great actors the sleaziest jude law just the most fiery carrie coon drinking what is she drinking martinis at the dinner scene holy shit i just i love the two of them we'll talk about it more later in the podcast but man i got intoxicating movie Mm, the nest uh all right i am my pick for number eight is uh palm springs and would you believe it that's not even the last time we're going to talk about palm springs all right on this podcast so david picked something uh that will be also be showing up later on um cool i'll uh, make this this quick It's yeah, uh, go for it. American Utopia. It's uh, despite, or David. We're on the Amer- road to American nowhere. Utopia. Not a sure. Talking Heads movie necessarily, but I think anyone can forgive me that pun earlier. Uh, and uh, it is one of two very good movies that Spike Lee made this year. It fucking rules. Uh, we'll talk about it later. All right. That means we're to the number sevens, which means it's a great time for Katie and Patches to talk about The Nest again. Yeah, The Nest! Hey, the movie's hey. so Richard good. Richard Lawson, the nest talk. Richard Lawson nest got talk. to Katie. Wait, are you, are you anti-Nest? Like, oh, a, on, like a good horse course, you just can't keep it down. <laughs> no, I, I am not. I'm not anti-The Nest at all. I, uh, I do love any movie that features several horse corpses, yes. It's, uh, it's got to be just one horse like, corpse. That's an expensive-ass special effect. It is. But I, I also, I mean, someone else is saying this in parodying. I can't remember who. But it was one of those movies that felt like the rare films of this age, even with all the other movies that have been on our respective lists that was made for adults. And like so much of that has to do with tone and, and anything that's going to evoke, uh, you know, Reaganomics and uh, things of that nature in a more serious way than Wonder Woman 1984 did at least. But um, wait, 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 this is my entry. This is my entry. Oh, Uh, wait, but didn't you ask me about it? No, I did. I did. Sorry. I I I forgot. No, no, you're, you're, you're right to point out why the fuck am I talking about it? (laughs) You're good. You're going full Jude Law right now. I'm not anti the nest. The nest is a cool movie. Go on. Ness is a great movie. Um, I, even though as I was saying earlier about how I like Palm Springs because it was so structured and like felt like clockwork the nest I didn't know what kind of movie I was watching almost the entire time like you really you don't there's some horror lurking over them and you don't know if it's like Reagan or like wealth or sexism or or murder like you don't know what is going to happen to these people and you kind of get to the end and you feel almost breathless at like what you've gone through and it's so much more 
personal and like not low stakes because it's high stakes, but like it's it's it just makes every good choice while ratcheting up that tension through the whole thing. And as Patches was saying, like it's got these two amazing performers in the middle of it. You know, Carrie Coon is one of those actors who I think people who've seen her on stage, especially, are just like constantly rooting for her to get the showcase role. Like this is so much of a showcase role. My like Oscar obsession just makes me still wonder if she can maybe make it in for the Oscars at some point because it's a it's a weird year and this is a you know this is a small like aggressively for adults movie like David was saying like I get why it's not going to be like as accessible as some other stuff but it is like it's a chance to see that acting it's a chance to kind of like put yourself in the hands of a director like Sean Durkin who just like really is in complete control of the story he wants to tell and like you know see what happens when you get to the end of it so yeah I love that. I also think the movie looks incredible um oh it's well I watched uh... it on a screener and that was kind of a miserable experience like I really because it has a lot of blacks in it, and it if you're watching it on like a, on your television sometimes or on your screen, like the blacks were all kind of like weird and pixelated, and it made me maybe yeah, this is an IFC almost movie. more than anything. Inside baseball, they have the worst screening. <sighs> yeah, I like. I should maybe like rent it on iTunes or something to watch it properly because like I yeah, miss guy, seeing it on a big screen. Matthias Yerdeli, he shot Son of Saul, one of your favorite movies. Hey. Um, one of your favorite movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Hungarian guy. And it, it has this Euro feel, and I, I guess which makes sense, because they start in New York, and then they, they jump the Atlantic, and they go to the UK. But it's still, it doesn't feel like American or British film. It feels something, it feels like a ghost story. It feels like a horror movie at times. It feels times. like a haunted house movie. Yeah, and they go, this giant they go British this mansion. big mansion. Um, yeah. and it's creepy as hell and mm-hmm. and then there's like a party scene that feels like it's out of Mother or something and <laughs> I don't know I like getting a headache at the movies the Ness is great oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, alright in terms of not getting headaches let's assume Patches your next movie didn't give you a headache uh, what did I you pick I don't think we can assume your... that okay what is your number seven pick? And just tease it, because it's coming up again. I'm thinking of ending this podcast. No, no. I'm thinking of ending things by Charlie The fact Kaufman. that that movie didn't give you a headache is disturbing, Oh, honestly. that movie definitely gave me a headache. But the good kind <laughs> oh, okay. of headache. The good kind of headache. We'll talk about it more <laughs> later. We will. Uh, all right. Me. Me. I'm up. I picked something. Ooh, then no one else picked. Um, uh, this is something, uh, that David mentioned we should talk about on the podcast and we never did, but it did <laughs> make me interested in what he was talking about. It is a 2020 Danish dramedy called Another Round. That's about Mads Mikkelsen and some of his, uh, teachers, uh, deciding to live, al- uh, live life at a, uh, certain level of drunk, uh, every day. It begins with a very specific level and then moves depending on what everybody thinks, uh, they can handle. Uh, and, uh, it spirals into an uncontrolled scientific experiment, I think, with alcohol, uh, that surprisingly ends in a very uplifting way. There is a dance sequence at the end of this movie. Uh, that is amazing, uh, both in context and out of context. Uh, but I think what I liked the most about Another Round is like the first half of it feels like um, the full Monty just with booze. It's like a whole <laughs> bunch of sad, um, you know, white dudes. Some of them have families, some of them don't, but they're all uh, stuck in a rut. And suddenly they're excited by this idea 
uh, in this case, it's getting drunk, but just excited by an idea enough to sort of take it uh, to its full logical conclusion. Of course, the logical conclusion of being drunk all the time is uh, about with alcoholism. Uh, but even knowing that eventually the film has to barrel toward that, I found it uh, very pleasant. So when it does uh, dig in and um, in the, during the climax and switch from the second act to the third act, uh, sort of reckon with the consequences of the negative choices uh, that these men have made under the influence. Uh, I think it manages to do it well. It doesn't feel like it's lecturing or coming out of left field. It feels like a very well-structured and gentle movie, uh, which is uh, what I ended up uh, liking about it. I love and then again, that dance sequence. I, this almost made my list. Oh, and uh, big Thomas Vinterberg fan. And this movie really made me think, like, how do movies like this get away with being realistic and not kind of i don't know we see so many american indies i think that just kind of shoot the shit and feel i don't know cheap or feel like they're not being shot with intent or something um and then you have something that's kind of mundane it's just like we're in a restaurant we're at school there's drinking but we're just having conversations but it feels so immersive and and swirling around i, I don't know I, dogwood I, 95 uh, yes yes how is it so still, successful still- how is it so successful? What is it about it? I don't Still know. Still using it in moderation. This is I mean, not a, nothing about film about moderation. There, there's like a scene where he, uh, Mads Mikkelsen's character, is like attempting to push the limit and like go up to like 0. 0.12 or something, uh, blood alcohol level, and still teaches history class. And he's like doing it and he's sweating, but he's excited by it and the kids are excited by it. And being able to sort of like pull that dangerous electricity out of these mundane moments and these uh men these lumps that are just you know content to do nothing until they have a good idea i think uh is uh pretty amazing if i and can, then I'll, I'll, go ahead no i was just gonna say if i can plug my own website uh something i didn't know about the movie until long after i'd watched it is a story that was written by my boss eric Cohn, an interview that he did with thomas vinterberg uh I, in reading the story, I learned that the movie was originally a, a bit lighter. Um, and four days into production, Thomas Vinterberg's twenty-something like daughter uh, died in a car crash. Oh my god! And he stepped away from the movie, and uh, it was directed by somebody else for a couple of days. And he came back, and uh, it obviously had an entirely different tenor to it. Uh, and you can see if you've seen the movie, I mean, there's this real pall of, of sadness and like trying to find a way to persevere through life's miseries and hardships and uh, the strength to keep going on. I think that's part of what makes uh, you know, the, the end point of Matt Nicholson's performance so cathartic and uh, alive. Um, it's just that, that feeling of pushing through loss wow. in a way. Yeah. On that note, who will play the Mads Mikkelsen part in the American remake? Will it be Will Ferrell or Vince Vaughn? <laughs> Oh, God, just let it be Mads Mikkelsen again. It's not that hard. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. (laughs) Uh, All right. Uh, Next, David has picked a movie that will appear three more times after this. Wow. Uh, David, what was your number seven pick? It was Nomadland. We'll talk about it later. Wow. It seems like we will be talking about Nomadland later. Another example of a movie, or another example. The first example of the movie on this list, I think that nobody can see right now. 
Uh, yeah, not for long though. I think it's coming soonish. Couple of weeks, yeah, three weeks, four weeks, something like that. We'll get there. All right, it is time to for number sixes. We're going to start off with Katie Rich, who gets to mention this movie for the first time, but we'll be talking about it more. Another, Katie, what's your number six pick? Another movie you can't see right now. It's Minari. It, That's right. <laughs> uh, speaking of movies that are completely, perfectly structured from beginning to end, it is a it is a real marvel of a script and uh, also directed and acted and kind of all of the... It is the full package? Is that a... I don't know. That sounds yeah. like a dumb thing to say, but that's just literally what it is. It's a great movie. We'll talk about it. It's a full package. Uh, Patches, you also have a, another very popular movie on our list uh, as your number six. So uh, welcome to the countdown. First cow. First Ooh. time saying it. Hey. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you describe Minari as a full package because I actually think first cow fits that bill it's like pretty just <laughs> multiple suspenseful. movies can fit that bill. <laughs> no only one movie can be the complete <laughs> there can only package. be one <laughs> uh first cat first cow just like it gets it gives you everything it's actually pure entertainment for being a movie about two guys milking a cow uh i, I dig it and uh green we could talk about it more we'll as we move on my number six pick also will be coming up later but i have placed this movie the lowest uh it is never rarely sometimes always which is the only movie on my countdown that i was uncomfortable through the entire way uh, like were you just I've, sitting awkwardly or what was yeah. the story there no no i think it's really important like uh post me too to recognize um how much of a complete magic trick it is to put me dave gonzalez late 30s male a little hispanic uh into the head of a teenage girl who uh needs to go to get an abortion in new york uh the streets at night are magical and terrifying in a exact right proportion that i know from having lived there the performances are so genuine from next emma watson and next Dosa ronan uh, that uh, they keep you in it uh, entirely. <laughs> That's how we're identifying them. <laughs> okay. Until we actually talk about the movie. Oh, see, uh, never rarely, never rarely, sometimes always. Uh, all right. Uh, David, yeah. your number six pick is, uh, you're the only person mentioning it. So take take it away with Baccarat. Baccarat. Uh, all right. Well, I, I let's see. How can I butcher this the least? Baccarat is really interesting movie to talk about and I, I feel like of all the movies on my list and someone who typically loathes their own work uh, I saw this at Cannes in 2019 and like had to hammer out a review right away and I think the writing and like my initial reaction was just to be like what is this weirdo hodgepodge quasi like quasi neo-Brazilian western about a town that is literally erased an ancient town that is literally erased off of modern maps with digital tools by the powers that be who want to uh, these westerners, westerners, they're already west, but these uh, white people want to come in and hunt the locals for sport. They were led by Udo Kier. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the writing that has come from people who uh, are close to the material, who just had more time and were generally smarter, uh, really keyed into what this movie has done better than I did at the time. But on its surface, Baccarat is um, it's a wild hodgepodge. I mean, as I said, it, it feels... I guess the most, the closest analog, um, at least of very recent movies, would be 
someone reads movies with either good, the bad, and the weird for some reason. I mean, that's kind of, uh, but there are elements of just in terms of like playing with the, the Western genre and unexpected settings and throwing a bunch of other things into the stew. But there are elements of John Carpenter. There are uh, elements of, I don't know, like Punishment Park. There are all sorts of funky things going down. Uh, in Baccarat, Sonia Braga is in it, reprising her role in the director's previous film, Aquarius. Not reprising a role, different role, but uh, re-teaming with the director. Um, she is incredible. Uh, she plays a local doctor, I believe, with a long ponytail that she wields with authority. Uh, I mean, this movie, it's its wild, wild stuff. Anti-colonialist uh, energy. It's raucously political uh, but always a really good time. It it builds inevitably to this complete violent freak out at the end, uh, which is shot with aplomb. Um, it it all feels really angry, but in a caustic and fun way. Uh, there are drones that look like Plan Nine from Outer Space era UFOs. There are capoeira scenes set to John Carpenter music. There is a village-wide, a, like, seven samurai-like battle for protection, like, for the safety of their village uh, with machetes and the villagers hiding underground and shooting at the, the white, you know, murder tourists who come in. How have I not seen this movie? It rules. <laughs> I don't know. I, it totally rules. I mean, seeing it in the middle, I mean, Ken has fun movies from time to time, but, like, this was in the middle of competition. It was just very unexpected. Uh, and I, yeah, I'll be the first to admit I'm not doing a great job of justifying it, although it sounds like I'm doing a decent job of at least piquing interest. Uh, but go check out Baccarat. It's, uh, it came out in like March, and so it should be wherever fine movies are streamed. Uh, <laughs> it's cool. Wherever fine movies are streamed. Uh, all right, we're halfway done. It's time for the number fives. Here we go. Katie, you sent over this entry, but then I had also, like I said for Mangrove, we had not discovered exactly how we were going to deal with small acts. So explain your number five pick. Uh, Yeah, I picked Lover's Rock in the small act series. I, like you, did not finish it. I watched Red, White, and Blue over the weekend, and I had seen Mangrove and Lover's Rock. And I think I thought I was going to pick Mangrove because of what I was saying earlier about how it feels like a complete film. It's kind of the longest. It's, you know, the most, it's the biggest in some ways. Um, And then when I finished Red, White, and Blue, I was like, let me just rewatch the silly game scene in Lover's Rock, which if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, where they, you know, it's this movie that's entirely set at a house party. And many, many songs play in their entirety throughout the film and this one plays and finishes and everyone is singing along and then they just kind of sing the entire song again and this like very deliberate slow pace and you're watching the main characters for a while and you're watching these side characters then you're kind of watching these characters you don't know but you feel kind of the narrative of the film exists within them and they they sing back and forth to each other and it's like it's just a hugely transporting moment it's you know you feel Steve McQueen and all of his directorial powers even though it's a really simple sequence and and you watch it in 2020 and you think about the last time you went to a house party and how long it might be before you can I mean there's a literal shot of sweat on the walls like the, the room itself is sweating with this crowd and it's a really visceral thing that now feels like kind of scary but someday we'll 
feel good again. Um, so I picked Lover's Rock because it made me feel that. It feel, it, it's short and it's simple and it's kind of the, the entry that I think is deliberately about black joy because a lot of it is about these people and kind of the, the terrible things that they endured at the hands of police and kind of general racism in Britain. And there's a little bit of that in there. You know, there's a part where the, the girl goes outside and there's kind of this group of like toughs who are down the street, a bunch of white guys, and you, you realize that the threat like how much there is a threat outside of this enclosed space in this house where they're throwing this party. Um, but man, it looks like a fun party. I really can't wait to go to parties <laughs> again. Um, I probably won't go to one as good as the one in Lover's Rock, but Very I'm, I'm going to try. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's such a great movie and it's like 60 minutes long. And like, like I said, joyful, it's so easy to just pick up and, and put yourself into. And you can watch it with subtitles on Amazon prime, which I couldn't, when I saw it at the New York film festival, I don't know that I miss much. Like there's a lot of just patois that you're not going to catch on to, but it, it doesn't really matter that much. It's all about, it's about the music. I man. feel like not understanding it is even better because it feels like you're <laughs> in a party where you yeah. can't quite make out what everyone's talking about. And it's so visual yeah. that I don't know. I, I watched this movie at midnight on a whim and um, <laughs> it's the perfect time for it. Like, yeah, it really just is. Just be kind of delirious. Uh, excellent. Patches, uh, your movie your number five pick will be coming up again, so yeah. introduce this to the countdown. My, my pick better be coming up again. It's uh, another documentary film. Dick Johnson is Dead, the latest film from Kirsten Johnson, the director of Camera Person. And we'll talk about it more, but as someone who thinks a, a lot about death, dwells way too much on that topic, what a great film to see when I was far away from my family. Again, it's, it's basically it's all you own. talk to Eleanor about. Just death, yeah. death in our house. <laughs> uh, my pick for number five, we will be, again be talking about, but this is where I put time on my list. Um, uh, the only reason I don't think it ended up uh, being higher is because I would define time uh, more as a like a romance, a very particular romance, and about perseverance and like a character study. Whereas I feel like um, I might have spent a little bit too much of its running time unfairly wondering when it was going to like go in some more specifically abolitionist uh, direction. And it Get doesn't, which is fine. Well, which, I mean, which is fine. You could argue that its existence is sort of implicitly abolitionist that's, that's in some what ways. I say. Yes, it's, I... I believe that uh it's just i it, it, i wouldn't classify it as like an argument movie it's not like a bowling no. for columbine I mean, we have the 13th that seems like yeah a yes good, uh, with the, we have the 13th which is does it's it's an argument movie that's a great example of it uh but i do think um once i started thinking about time uh in terms of real characters which is a dumb way of saying once i fully like empathized with it uh that's where it ended up for me it was at number five Oh, uh, but we'll be talking about some more. David, Yeah, it is now time to talk about I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh, man, I feel like I haven't done much besides talk about I'm Thinking of Ending Things since September. Uh, this is a movie that feels like it was made for me. Um, Charlie Kaufman's latest film and that adaptation of Ian Reid's novel of the same name. It kind of feels like a vaguely unfilmable book. Maybe not Trish from Shandy level, but... Uh, Close enough, and uh, he fucking knocked it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Probably the most polarizing film on any of our lists, if not of the year. 
as a whole. We, we had a big conversation about this one yeah. too. Right? I think we, we did. yelling and fighting and true fighting in the war. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this one at length, so there's probably not much need to, to rehash it. But only that I stand by all my love for the movie, and then some. Well, I'd be uh, curious how it's how it's grown on you since. Like, what? Well, what's the poignant part times, of it for you? I watched it a lot of times right out the gate, so it was already growing. Um, but I mean, I think just. First of all, the humor. I just find it so funny. I was just watching little bits and pieces of it, and there are just so many throwaway lines. Like, every line is sort of poison-coated. Uh, and you can find this throughout basically everything Charlie Kaufman has written. But, there, I mean, there, there's this one exchange. I'm trying to remember the punchline. I was just tweeted out a couple of years, a couple of years ago. Jesus, a couple of weeks no, no, ago. No, no, no. I, uh, I think it was years, actually. Uh, it, <laughs> it was years. It was literally last year uh, with David uh, Thewlis and Tony Collette. At dinner, he's talking about right. He's talking about the wife painting and like being outside of it. And he's like, she's like, oh yeah, I do. He's like, you paint. <laughs> she's talking about interiority of painting, and he's like, you paint inside. It's very funny. You have to be there. But uh, the movie is is very very funny. Um, but I just I think all of the things that I took away from it for the first from from the the get go have just sort of grown with me, and uh, I feel like are really baked into the text. And Jesse Buckley's performance, uh, especially, is just so strong and exciting. And I just think this, there's so much happening in this movie, and um, Seeing how, I mean, uh, for a lot of the people who love it, but also a lot of the people who, who didn't, maybe even actively hated it, like so much of what makes this movie what it is has stuck with them and sort of warmed its way into conversation. Um, you know, I framed the whole video I made this year, the, my favorite films of the year, around inevitably around the dance sequence at the end of this movie and the, capped it off with the Robert Zemeckis title card joke. And like so many people who, who said nice things about the video despite all of the I'm thinking of anything's content. Like we're just so receptive and, and aware of all of this movie's language and the references that it wheels into, into the text and how it uses them and bangs them off of each other. And it feels like even the people who made this movie made their skin crawl kind of uh, got something out of it. They felt something while watching it. And I think that's an interesting testament to, to what Kaufman was going for, but... I'm I one really of those people movie, when I did love the dance movie. sequence. I was you happy did love to the dance I was happy to yeah, I, I'm always gonna love a dance sequence, especially to Oklahoma. It, right. Um, it is and, uh, but yeah. that movie is very strongly musical theater themed. And how can you not love Jesse Plemons singing Lonely Room at the end there? Uh I mean he his voice and he's in a band and it's actually him singing. Jesse Buckley I mean, Chris Victoria. Incredible singer not singing. <laughs> but but his voice feels like it could like he, Win Butler could retire tomorrow, and Jesse Buckley, Jesse Buckley. I mean, sure, she could step in the Arcade Fire. Jesse Plemons could step in the Arcade Fire, and the band wouldn't miss a beat. I mean, they probably improved significantly after the last couple of albums. But I can't remember uh, if I said that. this on our review. If this became later, I didn't get the Beautiful Mind reference at all in that when I watched that movie. I hadn't seen. I haven't seen Beautiful Mind since two thousand one. I just had no idea that it was trying. It was like a, entirely a play on that. So that was an interesting revelation for me. Long after the fact, you of all people should have. I, I mean, that I is. Mean, I've uh, that is. Seen awesome. it. I burned into my brain. Is that- I don't know. I barely remember it. All right, yeah, next week's all episode. All I remember the is that mind. the pigeons are also the girls in the bar. That's the breakthrough in a beautiful mind, right? All right, you're good. And in your, <laughs> uh, and your dating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I called me a pigeon fucker. Here we go. Number fours, Katie. You have a unique pick to this uh, list, uh, but one that I've heard only good things about. 
I figured I would be the only person with this on here. It's The Personal History of David Copperfield, which oh. I take it back. I did see this movie in a theater. It premiered at Toronto in 2019. So it is the only movie on this list that I saw in a proper crowd full of people. And and one then, of those movies that I did, I never got a chance to see. And oh. I made an effort to. Um, yeah. It is, so I, I watched it then and I rewatched it because I did an interview with Armando Iannucci a couple months ago. Um, and it's just so, like I was saying about time, like it's very full of life. It is this uh, adaptation of a Charles Dickens book. And it has a lot in it. Like there's a lot of stuff. And it's something that I think could risk feeling really gimmicky where like – Dev Patel starts out addressing an audience on a stage and he turns around and the audience is sitting in a field and he's walking through a field and like a set will collapse because it turns out it's just a sheet or like something will turn into like a paper mache boat and a hand reaches through and you get how that could feel really exhausting in a lot of different hands but Armando Iannucci who you think of for Death of Stalin or creating Veep or In the Loop um, just has this grip on when it works and when it doesn't and it makes the story which is you know narrated in first person it begins with you know david copperfield literally saying like here is the story of my life so it's got this like fantastical quality to it and it allows you know people to kind of move in and out of this very sprawling story and for it to bounce around between timelines and it just instead of feeling all over the place it feels very deliberate and and, and of keeping with the energy that Def patel brings to it as the title character um he's so great in it and he you know i you know i seen him in some like millionaire and i'd seen him in lion and he felt like he was getting into the spot of being like hello i and like the noble cute boy and he's just like this like sexy hero in the movie but also still really funny and um you know a lot has been made about the race blind casting in this movie where he is playing the i can't remember how his mom is white and then you've got like a black woman who's the daughter of an asian man and it's all over the place and it doesn't matter because they've got all these great actors playing all these great characters and it takes this what's you know, Dickens can be so fusty and so, like, inaccessible to so many people. And I think for it's such a huge part of the British canon that when it's been adapted before has been inaccessible to many, many, many British people who are not white. And so the effort of just making that and opening it up to people, I think, really uh, gets across the spirit of the entire story. Um, I've never even read the book, David Copperfield, but I keep wow. thinking I should after <laughs> after seeing this movie and loving it so much. But I saw David Copperfield on Broadway once. He flew. Oh. It was crazy. Uh, yeah, the Patel was great when he made the Washington Monument disappear in this, uh, in this movie. Katie, did this movie leave you more or less inclined to go with my suggestion that Dev Patel should be the next James Bond? Oh no, hundred percent. I can't. I, I can't remember if I saw you or someone else make that suggestion, but yeah, no, me. I wrote a whole article about it. He's me, me, me. So I want credit in it. for something like, that is never going to happen. I don't know how swole he is these days, but I'm sure he could be just oh, swole enough can get to swole. be James they Bond. They make pills for that. Um. <laughs> he was in. He was in a movie called The Wedding Guest, which wasn't particularly good but it did feel like a, an audition reel for it was a Michael Winterbottom like throwaway it, it felt like an audition for James Bond and he would be so good in the role I feel like he'd be good as James happen, Bond because I don't think Dev Patel is capable of being the like kind of block of granite like hello I'm very humorless James Bond like he would bring a, a liveliness to it that I think yeah I think why he excels so much in David Copperfield is he captures that whimsy uh, the, the movie is like functional Terry Gilliam uh, it really is everything <laughs> Terry Gilliam wishes he was making time and time again, unfortunately. And yeah. Armando Inucci does it so well. And uh, Dev Patel is like in step. It's like a dance. It really is. Yeah, him, no, like, it really. Through every scene. It requires him to be just like in the tone at every possible moment. And he really is. And like Hugh Laurie and um, Peter Capaldi and Tilda Swinton and all these other people, Benedict Wong, and all these people in uh, supporting roles are all right with I'd it. I'd rather too. watch Dev Patel do like. Fincher aping Hitchcock and him playing like Cary Grant or something or Jimmy Stewart. Or oh, something. that's the kind of role. Like put him 
fish out of water or in over his head about Dev something. Patel and a Jimmy Stig- like remake the Philadelphia Stig- story with Dev Ooh. Patel and I might I might allow it. Ooh. A whole category uh, of movies. On the far <laughs> other end of the uh, whiteness spectrum, I do just want to give a quick shout out to the other sort of Regency era story from this year, which was uh, Autumn to Wild's Emma, which is a movie that I just really loved. And I thought you were going to mention Bridgerton. No, that, <laughs> that would be you know closer to the, this David Copperfield in terms of uh, its casting. But uh, That's true. No, Emma is as white bread as it gets, but I still loved it. Uh, Patches... Uh, you just get to mention this one because we're going to be kicking it up, but your number four pick was... No Mad Land, a new Black Friday classic. We'll be <laughs> watching it every year. That's a weird energy to bring to Nomadland. I'm just going <laughs> to say that. I mean, it could technically work, Black Friday to Black Friday, I think. All right, uh, my number four pick is Wolfwalker's... The animated movie, the third um, in Cartoon Saloon's um, Irish Folklore Trilogy, uh, The Secret of Kells had, like, the Vikings and uh, Illuminated Texts. Song of the Sea had something, I, I didn't see it, so I don't know, but I'm assuming also Irish mythology. Wolfwalkers uh, is the story of a town that is next to a forest where it's the magical uh, wolfwalkers who are... Uh, humans that become wolves when they fall asleep uh, live with like a wolf pack. Uh, the uh, Lord, I want to call him the Lord Regent. Uh, I think uh, that would, Lord, that's protector? His title. So, Lord Protector. Lord Thank Protector. Uh, Lord Protector. Lord uh, Protector has come up from England to this settlement in Ireland and is attempting to subjugate the wilds as the English do in the name of the Christian Lord, as is historically accurate. Um, not only is this movie beautifully animated, uh, but it builds on its style in a way that, uh, the third act of this movie might be perfect. Uh, I have a real hard time finding, um, places that I would have made a different decision in terms of the script, in terms of the performance, in terms of how it was animated, in terms of like, even, uh, when they decide to portray depth as uh, something that goes up and down or something that actually goes back uh, based, I'm assuming, on um, tapestry art, uh, which is where a lot of this sort of uh, flat look uh, looks by. But it's really smartly designed all the way through. It's like you meet some villagers at the very beginning of the story and they're all drawn with round circles and they're missing a tooth and they're humble farmers or they're, you know, rebel children, which means they're native, they're not English. And then slowly, as we get more involved with the Wolfwalkers and their conflict with the town, the design of the town people starts to change. So their cheeks get angular and their faces that were round become triangles. And the round face guy, he's put in the stocks, so he's lower than everybody. And uh, just so such smart design together with such smart storytelling that manages to tell a fairy tale uh, that unravels more layers about what it's talking about as it goes on the whole like in service of the christian lord thing is really only a development that takes place about halfway uh through the movie um the whole idea of the lord protector being um someone who thinks that nature needs to just be like straight out dominated is i i think dealt with 
so realistically and story-wise with a deft hand when you could have just Avatar unobtainium'd it and, like, fucked it up. Like, we know these parallels because we've seen these in fairy tales before, but the way Wolfwalkers manages to pull it all off is absolutely amazing. Um, definitely my favorite animated movie of the year, and uh, I was just a wellspring of emotion at the end of this movie as they started, like really putting characters that I didn't think I w- uh, cared too much about in peril, and I was very worried for them. And uh, both of these uh, young girls and their families. Uh, I w- Wolfwalkers, man. I want to say that last week uh, I was called out on mic by David for having watched some of Wolfwalkers because I watched it and then I had to put it down, do something else in my life. I finished mm-hmm. Wolfwalkers. It's a great, beautiful movie. How does yeah. it compare to Raised by Wolves? <laughs> <laughs> That's next week's topic, I think. It's yeah. a shot-by-shot comparison. Mm-hmm. Wolfwalkers, number four. David, now is our time to actually talk about Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, I mean, Eliza Hitman has been a filmmaker on the, the com, as they say, which is probably one of those expressions that's going to be recycled any day, any day now. But uh, she is been, you know, after uh, Beach Rats and It Felt Like Love has really been an emerging talent. And I think uh, it's all been sort of building towards Never Rarely Sometimes Always, which is an incredibly harrowing film, as Dave was describing earlier, about um, a high school girl. I don't remember exactly how old was she was, 16 or 17. She's 17, 17, 17, I think. Right, as, as the uh, Sharon Van Etten song, Sharon Van Etten, who plays her mother in the movie, uh goes 17 and uh she is uh when the movie begins she is pregnant with her boyfriend who is also not much of a character and seems to have wiped his hands in the situation uh with, with the, the child they had whatever i mean all the rhetoric here is so loaded but uh, <laughs> the uh they she's pregnant and uh you know she is not able to get an abortion without consent from her parents in state of Pennsylvania. And so she and her cousins played by Talia Ryder, Sydney Flanagan plays. Uh, yeah, there's the names. Yeah, Sydney Flanagan plays the, the main girl, uh, Autumn. She's incredible. Uh, they need to take a little bit of a road trip, which they do on a bus to New York, which is uh, an uninviting city at the best of times. And particularly so to two teenage girls who don't have a lot of money between them who are there on a very vulnerable and sensitive mission. Uh, and it, I mean, it's just... I think one of the most striking things about this movie relative to its most obvious precursors and something that is a lot more male gazy, which is something this movie is actively, you know, peeling itself away from is uh, four months, three weeks and two days. Uh, and that one of the, th- the biggest discrepancies between these two movies is that that was a period piece. And this isn't this movie doesn't have to be. It can be set in the here and now and still have young women needing to go to such extreme lengths in order to. Uh, exercise their reproductive rights and uh, have some control over their bodies. And uh, they do so in the face of a lot of uh, leering and increasingly hostile uh, male involvement. And there's a whole subplot involving another teenage boy who's, you know, not going to take their lives, but is uh, they is a threat. A teenage boy. Yeah, exactly. And, but like a really sleazy one, but, but still it's uh Represents a very real threat as to a lot of the men they come across. And it, I mean, I, it's just such a beautifully rendered story. It's very matter of fact, 
Um, it is not verite, which is a word that's been talked around a lot. I was in the middle of writing a profile about uh, Helene Louvard, who shot the film and this rig that she invented and uses on a number of her movies that allows her to sort of be as intimate and, and present as a documentary filmmaker might be, but also sort of be completely invisible um, both from the audience and the actors. You don't really feel the presence of someone behind the camera. It just sort of feels like it's there. And that really allows uh, Eliza Hittman to uh, get the, the energy that they're going for here. But I, I just think it's just such a beautifully rendered drama um, about it, it, what feels like a mythic journey, but is as real and all too real and all too possible and plausible um, at the same time. And uh, the performances are incredibly affecting the long take in which the film's title really gets its meaning where um, Sidney Flanagan is in the medical clinic in New York and being asked about a number of different things that have happened to her and never rarely, sometimes or always, especially regarding uh, abuse. Um, And the camera just sort of holds on her face as she, uh, all of the, the sort of, dark energy and the trauma that she's been trying to outrun uh, catches up with her is just a staggering uh, piece of filmmaking. And uh, it's a really remarkable movie that I think is one of the few movies uh, on our list, full stop this year that, that deserves a word like important, which I think is only, it's kind of toxic in its own way. It makes people less likely to see it or engage with it on a human level. But um yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, reproductive rights are still such a hot button issue in this country. And uh, I think it's worth looking at it, distilling away from, peeling it back from the political arena and just looking at the, the actual real world effects they have on people, young people, people in who are in vulnerable situations um, and the lengths they have to go to to protect themselves. And uh, for all those reasons and more, this is a phenomenal movie. What you said about the the men who threaten them is is interesting and like a really salient point in this. Although I think what's interesting about the movie is like the men are threatening, but there's no like big moment where like someone's trying to kidnap them. Like it's all a lot more mundane, which is much more true to life. Um, But the women who they who she encounters over the course of it, I think, are really fascinating. Like the women at the clinic, she goes to her in town of Pennsylvania who like seem like they're trying to help, but like are kind of trying to talk her out of her right to an abortion. Um, And then when she gets to Planned Parenthood or I assume it's Planned Parenthood. I don't think they say that. But in New York, and you get these women who are more informed and more medically based and kind of the incredible empathy that they extend and how you can tell they do this on a daily basis and how they've trained themselves to put themselves in these incredibly fraught, emotional situations and just give whatever they can. Um, That empathy and that feeling kind of emanating from it, um, especially with this protagonist who's really shutting herself down for a lot of the film and trying not to feel what's surrounding her, um, that really struck me. Mm. Yeah. It's just, it's really tense i think all the way through just as you're watching these two characters as skylar and autumn have a distinct goal but also be young and so they every choice is a choice of whether they have to do what they think is like comfortable or whether they're willing to give up a little bit of their own personal agency uh you know what have you and it's just like that that tension drew me through every scene and it was not like a super comfortable movie to watch but really worked if it's because of the rig that david's talking about if it's because the script uh, managed to find some fantastic young performers i don't know what it was 
but it, I wouldn't have been able, I think, to stop watching this movie in the middle of it and pick it up later. Yeah, I mean, there's something so bracing about the intimacy of really all of Hibben's movies, but this one in particular, I mean, the, she is catnip for me to open with like a song and dance number in a way. But the, the first scene of this movie, which really uh, disabuses anyone of using the, the verite uh, framework, is builds to Sidney uh, Flanagan, who was found on YouTube and is a musician in real life, performing... Uh, um, power of love and it's just like so raw and wrenching to see this teenage girl sing that song coming from a place uh, of knowing what it means even at that age and to see all the kids in the crowd sort of jeering at her because she isn't doing something I don't know more flashy or she's, she's willing to put her heart in her sleeve like that I mean it's just like you're so in in it with her uh, from the moment you meet that and it only that Bonnaloo comes uh, more arresting as the movie goes on, but it's really powerful. Never right, sometimes always. You could get it on that HBO Max if that's your flavor. Uh, speaking of things that we could stream, but maybe something that uh, has a different tone at the end of it, Katie, your number three means it's time to talk about David Byrne's American Utopia. Yeah, entirely. also on HBO Max. So uh, thank you for not sponsoring this podcast, HBO Max. Um, American Utopia, the movie that maybe I wish I'd been able to see with the crowd the most, but you know, partly because it's about a Broadway show. So the crowd is very much a part of this film. As David mentioned, I think it was David who brought it up earlier. Um, it's by Spike Lee. Um, I don't know that I'm the person who's going to tell you like, what's the difference between like a concert movie and a Broadway movie and a Broadway show. And like, am I just like appreciating the show more than I am the movie? I don't, I mean, I think I can, there are definitely moments where you feel Spike Lee's hand behind the camera, like particularly um, when they perform this, a cover of a Janelle, Janelle Monet song called hell you talking about. Um, if you've seen the movie, you know that part. Um, but it's just this, you know, incredibly well-crafted show put together by David Byrne and this band that surrounds him where they play some talking head songs and some not. Um, and there's dancing and there is, you know, uh, instruments on stage. And just when you think you've gotten a grip on who does what, like someone's playing a different instrument or someone's dancing. Um, and I don't know, it's just so joyous and it's, it's David Byrne, like doing, breaking the songs and kind of giving monologues like about civic engagement and about how you have to vote and you have to vote in local elections. And he was registering people to vote in the lobby. And this movie, I saw it at the digital Toronto film festival. So it was in September and that's a period when I was doing a lot of election work myself. So it hit close to home there. Um, and then as, as shown in David's video, it ends with them kind of walking out into the audience and then out into the streets of New York and then all biking home. Uh, and it feels so lived in and surrounded by people. And it's kind of explicitly and implicitly about the value of who you surround yourself with and connecting with the people around you, which is something that's been in, you know, virtually impossible this year. Um, so it felt kind of like this beautiful glowing dispatch from a previous time and the time that we intend to get back to and American Utopia, the show is going to reopen on Broadway. Uh, this fall is the plan. So um, I don't know, maybe I'll, my gift to myself is that I'll get to go to New York and see it when, when we get out of this. Get to see a real American utopia. Oh, it's so good. I just want to watch it basically every day. It's like that, that scene in Lover's Rock, but like 90 minutes. <laughs> uh, all right. Moving on to Patches' number three pick. This one is another one that is only showing up on Patches' list. Really? But well, here, here at number three. Yeah, this one. Uh, I don't, what, for me. what title do you want? Yeah, yeah, what title do you want to go with it? Well, I mean, this is Borat's subsequent movie film delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Um, 
I was surprised that I was it was this high for me. I just really kept thinking about like how entertaining it was and how much I needed to see Borat in action in this world that we live in and his antics and and fighting fire with fire and also it's it's it was simultaneously nostalgic like a sequel to a movie that came out in what feels like the before times in terms of all of culture. Now, um, <laughs> social media did not exist when, when Borat first appeared. And now he's entering a totally different world where we can barely talk about the things that he would talk about. Or I, I didn't even know if Borat would be acceptable in the year 2020, let alone be embraced. It seems ho- almost wholly embraced. Um, and then, the discovery of his partner in crime on screen. Her name is Tutar. This, uh, this, this woman, Maria Bakalova, um, who can just go toe to toe with Sasha Baron Cohen. It is really astonishing to see the two of them at work. And I mean, there's been a lot of rhetoric. Like, is this mean spirited? Is this what we need right now? Is this stooping to the levels of, of, uh, like fake news or propaganda machines? I, I don't know, but I've listened to Dave tell me so much that we need to kind of stoop to other people's levels in order to fight the good battle. So maybe Borat <laughs> is is what is the weapon we needed in 2020. Oh, that's what you took away from all that. <laughs> yeah, that Borat was good. good. Blame Dave if you mm, think Borat. Maybe too Borat's too good. <laughs> um, I just I was laughing my ass off. I was I was woken up in my home and I was I, I I could pay attention. I was glued to my television, waiting to see what came next in Borat too. And I feel like it's hard to watch movies at home. Like I was saying at the top of the podcast, I just often found myself not wanting to fall deep into things and then let myself go uh, this year when watching stuff at home. And then this movie was rapturous for me. So I'm, I'm all for, for Borat too, which looked like hell to make as well. I mean, that part is entertaining to me as well. Watching the behind the scenes stuff of, uh, of of Sacha Baron Cohen going to like the MAGA rally and and singing awful Obama songs and then getting run out. I mean, maybe the t- movie takes on an entirely different tone again in the wake of everything we've just seen. But I will never, I will always have a tough time. There's a scene, you know, there's a scene where he goes and shacks up with the MAGA heads and like the QAnon people, and, and those people are helping him, like they're being nice and. No matter what happens in this world, I will have compassion for the people that I believe to be brainwashed and be led into the awful darkness by bad actors, um, demagogues. And I do think that there are people deep down who are good, who have been seduced to that dark side, and Borat meets some of them. And that's really depressing. It's really sad. I mean, I think he captures something about America that's true, which is like, we all start human. We all start with the potential to be good. And if they buy into just horrible shit, um, on some level, I don't blame them, even though what we see even now is just so stark and horrifying. And we can't believe our eyes what's happening. But I think Sacha Baron Cohen infiltrates that in some level in this movie and says like, Oh wait, there's hope. We should be fighting for people on some level. There is something to save here in America. And that's a beautiful thing. And then the movie ends with like such a touching father daughter story. It's so weird. How did it get away with that? It's incredible. I <laughs> bore is amazing. I look forward to getting back to the place as a culture where we can just like laugh and marvel at the like two week run Rudy Giuliani was on from when this came out to the four seasons total landscaping. Cause those were so close together. 
Uh, it's <laughs> unbelievable how much he fucked up in such a short period of time, and uh, I hope that we can unite around that again. I can someday. only hope Amer- America's mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty pretty incredible stuff. And Maria Bakalova, the actress uh, of our times, the actress our times demanded. <laughs> Uh, my number three pick is First Cow, and surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about it some more. We, we, people like First Cow, so I'm just going to say for my little insert here, some of the greatest side animal performances in First Cow, not only the titular cow, there's a dog in a boat pretty early on while some people are just having a conversation <laughs> that I really enjoy. There's a man in the shanty town who has like a crow for a pet really enjoy that there's the scene where they first take the biscuits into town where there seems to be like a little shit suit oily that cakes, to get at the clear. biscuits the oily cakes uh the you know was trying to get in the basket and then immediately uh loses interest once there's a noise off to the side just some great side animal acting in first cow <laughs> uh we'll talk about it more david yeah you have a very unique number three pick but let us know about <sighs> dave you forgot the to world say of tomorrow moving on well I have, a f- I have a few things i want to say the, the less annoying is that earlier i said that sydney flanagan sings uh the power of love at the beginning of never Real sometimes always and as much as i would love to have seen that <laughs> I, uh, the power of love that, that is not the case uh, she sings the exciters he's got the power which is a very different song. That's a very, very different song. Uh, It definitely is singing. She does sing The Power of Love. Though, the right? words The Power of Love are sung. For you sure. You would think that having tinkered around with the song in premiere for the last four months, I would know these things. But I have spent this entire day, and we're recording this on the Monday night that I posted that video, like trying to just bleed all of that from my brain or just letting it happen naturally. And so uh, that's where we are. Anyway, the other thing is... Very unique. Uh, it's a chill up my spine. Uh, but <laughs> this movie is unique, and that is the only... It's a short animated film that is, uh, I guess, only on my list. Predictable. I think anyone who has been following me or listening to this podcast for a while probably already knows to what franchise it belongs. I'm talking, of course, about Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, Episode 3, The Absent Destinations of David Prime. Uh, I really don't know what to say to people at this point that they haven't seen any of World of Tomorrow or any of Don Hertzfeld's work at all. Uh, but I guess if push came to shove, this would have to be, even though Wolf Walkers was on my top 25, my favorite animated film of the year. It's uh, 34 minutes long, which makes it almost as long as the previous two World of Tomorrows combined. And it continues the adventures of, uh, well, Emily Prime is not really uh, a factor anymore, but her clones and a guy by the name of David who we met briefly in the original tomorrow when he was a brainless clone growing up in a science exhibit or a museum exhibit rather uh, and it's sort of an interdimensional time traveling love story that does things in a super low budget uh, stick figures shooting each other way the Tenet which is another movie that I, I have fun things to say about I could only dream of uh, and does so while while having a lot of uh, typically Hertzfeldian gallows humor and fun about uh, the miseries of being alive (laughs) and uh, also the the beauty. Uh, And it's hilarious. I think I I laughed out loud. The only movie that made me laugh as hard this year as I did, this movie made me laugh even more consistently, was uh, Borat 2. Um, And I think like causing that kind of laughter when you're sitting alone at home staring into the your computer screen for you know months at a time it's a lot harder to inspire um and feels that much more special but 
man, I just, these movies are just nirvana for me. And uh, that Hertzfeld continues to find new, exciting and sort of brain bending and heart expanding ways of playing within this world of tomorrow uh, is, is really one of, is become one of the, the greatest gifts that the movies give to me and to us, I suppose, on a not quite biannual basis, but uh, every every three years, maybe, um, triannual basis. And he's going to be making more of them. That is at least the plan. I, I truly cannot wait to see where they go. Uh, I love it. I don't know. Portal Tomorrow episode three. Anyone? I mean, if, if I was honestly just surprised it wasn't your number one, that was the uh, the main I it was <laughs> thing I felt. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about it. We did. I'm interested to see how he'll just keep going. Uh, he's pushing his luck. Isn't well, he like I mean, four and five, and whatever else. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he would. I mean, he would love to make more than one at a time if given the resources. But I think. Uh, I mean, what a sandbox it is for him to play it. I mean, the sky is the limit in terms of what he can do with it. And I think all of his, it looks cool as hell. And this worldview, I mean, the characters, Emily is a character, whether it's Prime or her, you know, ninth generation clone or whatever the case might be. It's just Julia Potts voice performance that continues to be like the most exciting thing happening in animation for me. Uh, And it's so lo-fi, but just so brilliant and alive. And I mean, I think... The, the trap is actually more the other way that he could just make world tomorrows for the rest of his life and be perfectly satisfied. And people like me would be over the moon and maybe uh, there are other things he wants to, to do that he may not have time to do as a result of it, but I won't be complaining. Um, it's the best. All right. That means it's two the number twos to the twos here <laughs> on fighting in the warrior top tens. All right. Um, uh, Katie, is we're gonna we're gonna push through these first two. Katie has picked Nomadland, which we're about to talk about, okay. but not here in the number twos. Okay, and Patches has picked Time, Hi. which we are gonna talk about, but not here in the number twos. <laughs> uh, instead, we get to jump up to me, uh, who has placed Dick Johnson is dead at the highest place as my number two. Um, this is as Patches mentioned the documentary about death but it manages to be extremely joyous and i think um at least for me uh, like the fear of knowing you're on the tip of dementia and you just have to keep living is a real fear for me i've watched it sort of happen to one of my grandparents and that is what is happening uh, to dick johnson at the beginning of this movie uh, when we decide to spend some time contemplating his death before, you know, what we remember as the person is gone. And that tension mixed with the joy of these faked deaths really melded together for me to a movie that um, makes you feel super joyous about life with the understanding that it's going to end, uh, which is... Also, what I think Soul attempted to do uh, to a less effective degree, which is why Soul got my 10th uh, spot, is because I like this idea that in 2020, we look forward and we're like, we're going to die, so what do we do now? And I wish that I had spent more of the year with that outlook and not just a keeping my head ostrich trying to survive the American carnage. 
Um, but the few times that I was able to sit back and have the view that uh, the temporary part of our life is what makes it beautiful uh, was around watching Dick Johnson is Dead. Or even jumping in to watch some pieces of Dick Johnson is Dead, which I got to do uh, the past couple of weeks trying to figure out where to put it on my top ten. Yeah, that's, yeah it's, I, that's, it's funny for a documentary to be so good to just jump in and watch chunks of, but that's absolutely how this movie works. That there, once you've seen it, there's so many little spots to to jump in and find joy out of. I, I also labored over including this on my list and didn't wind up doing it, but I, I love this movie. I think it's uh, I think it's really great. Yeah, me too. And uh, well, like my my favorite documentary of the year. Can I say I one so. one other thing? Is that the thing that struck me almost the most is that um, that she got to do this fun project with her dad. That I, I was like, and, I was that, like, and oh that's my part God. of like, the I want to do that. Film. It's so great. It made me want to do it myself. It like makes you want to figure out some way to like grab your loved one and like force them to spend time with you in some kind of structured way. Uh, I'll report back if I figure out my own version. <laughs> And he's so up for it. Like, when he's sitting with doctors hearing about, like, how he'd be when he dies, like, oh, well, then, that would be, like, he's, like, making jokes. Like, I love Dick Johnson. But, I I mean, people, I hope this film does encourage people to do something similar. The the scenes where uh, Kirsten and her dad are, like, in her closet recording voiceover, or or she's in her closet recording voiceover and then steps out and sees him or recording his interviews. I, I mean, it's something that we should all do i think we talked a little about this when we talked about the film earlier in the year but i'm just like this is the time to talk to people in our lives and and interview them essentially or like hear them tell their stories and and get their perspectives and like come closer to them Mm -hmm. than ever before because those moments can be so fleeting that you'll only think of doing it after the fact because we don't want to talk about death we don't want to talk about what we forgot to say like get it all on the table as soon as you can because it's better to live with life than it is to wonder what it was like after death one of the things that I've like in, in trying to find a connective tissue between the movies of 2020 is something that I kept returning to is the idea that, uh, you know, especially in the middle of this crisis and the world was sort of slipping away under, under our feet and we were looking to family more than ever as a source of stability. But family, you know, even in the best of times can't necessarily fulfill that promise. I mean, so many of the movies that I think resonated this year had to do with, with parents, uh, patriarchs a lot of the time trying to uh, keep things whole or in place, even as the chaos of life was sort of happening against them. And you see that really clearly in something like Dick Johnson's Dead and also in The Father and in Minari and in Wolf Walkers and in a lot of these stories about even David Strathairn's character in Nomadland about the, the stability and protection that family ostensibly provides. It's an element of mangrove too. Yeah, Yeah. sure. That's a really good point. And like the, in the limits of that, when, when the real world gets in the way. And I think as to what patches was just talking about, I mean, I think, you know, piggybacking on that idea of this being the time to talk to your, your family. I mean, so much of it uh, this year was just about uh, love and worry and, and thinking about a lot of us, not me, but a lot of people out there were were with their family, quarantined with their family, um, and even those who weren't were sort of just talking with their family as sort of a, a way of keeping time and checking in with people, even while the world was sort of burning around them. And I think some people, you know, the, there were things happening within the family that just weren't as static as we would have hoped them to be. And I don't know, I think this is just something that is that death of Dick Johnson kind of presaged back in January at Sundance and ended up uh, being a, a real theme. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's my number two. Dick Johnson is dead. David, your number two is the top of this movie that I can't see yet. Uh, my number two is Minari. Yeah. Uh, so wait, are we talking about it again or is this it? No, this is it. This is it. This is the the peak Minari. Uh, cool. We actually haven't like talked about it on the podcast at all. Well, yeah, we'll we, be, we should we, honestly save some for when yes, more people Yes, I was about to it. say, let's be real quick about it now um, and just say, you know, Minari is the fourth film by Lee Isaac Chung. Uh, he may not be a filmmaker who's been on your radar. A lot of his movies were smaller in the indie scene, and this is definitely a, a big stepping stone for him. Uh, it won both the audience and uh, Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year. A24 is about to give it a big award season release, uh, push Steven Yeun for Best Actor. Um among other things, uh, other awards considerations of the movie. It's this really beautiful semi-autobiographical story about assimilation. The way I phrased it in my review is it's about a, a family assimilating into a country and also a man trying to assimilate into his own family and trying to sort of balance the just what we were just talking about, or what I was monologuing about anyway, about like the the idea, the sort of masculine idea of being the, the provider and protector of a family and, and carving out and manifesting a destiny for them and the obstacles that get in the way and the times you have to bend uh, and cede to forces beyond your control. And it's about a family moving into uh, Arkansas, rural Arkansas in the middle of the 1980s, a Korean family, Korean American family. The kids were born in America, but the parents are uh, very, very much first generation Korean. Or they are were born. They in are Korea, immigrants. Yeah, they are immigrants. And um, and then there's another generation, which is uh, Stephen Yoon's wife's mother, who comes to live with them. And she's played by Yoon Yoo Jung, and is wonderful. And the wife is played by Han Yeri. And there's of course um, Alan S Kim as uh, the young son of the family, who is just um, just the most incredible performance. But uh, uh, and it's just like such a beautifully told story about making a home for yourself um, in all the ways that people can. Uh, it feels, you know, there's a, a brouhaha recently about the Hollywood foreign press categorizing it as a foreign film because Korean is predominantly the language spoken in it when, in fact, as so many people were quick to point out, and rightly so, this is as fundamentally American as films get. I mean, it's really about um, the American identity as a hyphenate or anything else, about like what this country means and offers and people brings together and the home that it can can the potential that it has to be a home to all these different people and it's just it's so moving it is as uh, patches was saying earlier it's perfectly structured um it never really overplays its hand but it still hits with a wallop it's cute but never it has precious. a scene where someone drinks piss instead it of has mountain a dew. scene where someone drinks piss instead of mountain <laughs> dew which is, good. yeah uh, and mountain dew is described as water from the mountains mm-hmm. to uh, the grandmother who's come over accurately it is delicious mountain dew yeah uh, <laughs> i mean it, it's just it feels really lived in and uh well balanced and it could go wrong in a number of different sundancy directions at just about every turn um and it just doesn't they all like every aspect of this movie kind of reinforces the rest of it and it just feels like this beautiful complete whole that's bundled together by um uh what is his name this gave me the composer uh mosari emil mosari is that right um it's a great score yeah his score which from the literally the opening second of the movie is sort of guiding you through it uh Man, it's just a really easy movie to love. It's so I funny that you mentioned that it could like go wrong at any second because I, I'm I'm looking forward to rewatching Minari. Saw it back at Sundance, but at Sundance, I felt constantly like, 
I was on the edge. I was like anxious. Oh about, god, the yeah. KKK is going to show up any second. What dumb shit is this about to pull? Or like, what is it going to get too sappy? Is it going to be ham-fisted with the like racism or something? I'm just like, it never, it never takes the easy route. It's just realistic and it's just compassionate and it's a beautiful film. But like, I was too on edge watching it. I was waiting for it to pull a Sunday. It's one of those things where like it, it helps to know that other people have seen it and vouch for it and, yeah. and love it because exactly. you can kind of relax watching it. Yeah, I watched it with Michael who was like, what's going to happen? Someone's going to die. The kid's going to die. Right. Someone, something terrible is going to happen. And I was like, I don't think it's that kind of movie. And like, you know, serious things do happen in this movie. But like, I did not think the KKK was going to come running in. But that was all the faith, like you said, of other people <laughs> having seen it. Also, if you're a sucker like I am for shots of people like kneeling in the earth at magic mm. hour and like looking over upon the grassy fields of their homestead, like there's a lot of that in this. Steven Yeun is so real movie good. star energy in this movie. Yeah. Jesus oh my Christ! God, yeah, he's he is amazing. so good. And uh, man, the he's energy like Kevin he brings... Costner or something in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and but like, yeah, the dad energy he brings yeah. is like, it's it's unique and it's kind of brittle and and nervy, but. And there are moments of real sweetness, but none of it feels like calculated. Like one is meant to sort of comp- compensate for the other in yeah. a way, uh, in a screenwritery sort of way. It all just feels authentic. He also um, he's wearing a red hat a lot of the time, and I was hoping this can be the beginning of reclaiming the red hat. Well, well it kind of it reminds me time. of photos of uh, of Edward Yang on film sets in the eighties, and Edward Yang was not Korean, but he. Uh, I, I think is probably an influence for Lee Isaac Chung, uh, just because of the kinds of movies he makes and not from where he comes. But uh, uh, that's that was my go-to reference point. Obviously, the the Trump stain is there with the any red hat. I have a red ski hat that my company sent me that I even am cautious about wearing. But oh, yeah, here's uh, a picture of Edward Yang wearing not only a red 49ers hat but a red bandana around his neck and a red yeah. Hagen Dazs shirt. That's quite a combo of brand uh, clothing <laughs> to wear together. That's all. Uh, all right. I think that means it's time for number ones. Uh, these are our collectively, I think, for our favorite uh, movies this year uh, spread across. Uh, let's start with Katie. It's First Cow. Uh, and I was going to claim my bona fides by saying I put Meek's Cutoff as my number one of 2011. It was actually my number two behind Tree of Life. Speaking of people Ooh, uh, you know, living in the middle of the country, uh, staring out into the beautiful landscape. Um, I, we got a lot of like semi-westerns to talk about uh, between this and Nomadland and then like to maybe a lesser extent Minari. Um, but Kelly Reichardt has made the most interesting movies about the West um, of anyone working, I think, in the last 15 years or so. And First Cow is, um, as Dave was saying, it's got some great animal acting in there. It is this great story about two guys who are just kind of like trying to make it through. Um, Cookie and Lou. And, oh, what a great set Getting of it names. Done. I like that they make that bread from Force Awakens where you pour water on it and it expands <laughs> magically. I haven't had I mean, a funnel cake since I saw this movie, which is a real, I guess it's more like an elephant ear. No, there's, we should go, we should really unpack the connections between First Cow and Force Awakens. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, think, I think that's what the, what the filmmaker certainly intended. There, there's that hangout part of the movie where when Lou and Cookie finally get to like the, the settlement and when they finally come up with the idea to milk the cow. And that's like, I want to live in that part of the West yeah, where it's like talking about philosophy and possibility and picking up the squirrels that you've crushed with rocks <laughs> and picking the nuts. Like I love the aesthetics of this movie. Yeah. But there's always some off. burly dude with a rifle around the corner. Who's going to try to kill you for that squirrel. 
Well, I mean, that's part of the, you know, real danger of the West. But I think, like, this one, um, Meek's Cut-Up felt kind of claustrophobic to me. And this one does not. Yeah, no, Meek's Cut-Off is, is, like is much sterner and, like, is much more of a tragedy, really. Um, but it's also about kind of, like, people who you do not see in typical Westerns, like, how they make their way through the world. And what I love about First Cut-Off so much is it's got this warmth of this friendship between these two guys. And neither of them are really suited to the, like, bear trap or, I guess, like, fox trapping, like, Oregon that they're in. Like, they'd both probably rather just, like, work in a kitchen and, like, New Orleans or something but instead they're there they find each other they team up they like bring this tiny little bit of luxury and goodness into this world that is so rough otherwise and people go nuts for it because they want milk and you see Toby Jones is the Englishman who's brought this cow all the way there he's gone through so much effort to try to civilize the West and it's about how the West isn't going to be civilized and that's kind of what drives the plot of the back half of it Um, but just watching these two guys like take care of each other and try to find a way to make nice things possible for themselves in this really inhospitable world. Um, it's so like touching to me and also like beautifully filmed, like every Kelly Reichardt movie. It's not, I, it's, I saw it in March. It might be the least recent movie I have uh, on my entire list, but it has stuck with me as pretty much all of her movies have. And I love yeah, it. And as we said, I mean, it has, I feel like Kelly Reichardt has this uh, reputation for kind of making like aimless walk talk Mumblecore-ish movies, maybe because no, of what? Old Joy. No, but I'm saying oh, I, I feel like Old it's a Joy false is like reputation. Eighteen years old. <laughs> no, but I I, I, yeah. I feel like Wendy and Lucy people mistaken that kind of. I feel like her she has tight scripts and well she has like so little dialogue usually like first cow I mean I guess but they're plotty this movie is plotty yeah but like not like walk and talk is not really a thing she does like walk and like in like silence is a thing that she does <laughs> right uh, well let's yeah or I, I guess now they're going to sweep a, the hut. As a, as a replacement for just like aimless or ethereal or something. But I, what I was taken by with First Cow, it almost reminds me of Night Moves, possibly her most like suspenseful, plot-driven, no one remembers that movie yeah. at all movie. I um, remember, I mean, Night, Night Moves semi doesn't exist. But, Night Moves uh, is good. Night Moves it, is good. It does end with and Griffin it's... Newman in a memorable scene in the gas station. That's true. Uh, that was a sporting uh, goods store. Yeah, he's, behind the counter. Whatever. he's behind the counter. He's behind the counter. Very <laughs> memorable uh, movie with a very memorable Griffin Newman role. <laughs> <laughs> um, but First Cow has a plot. It's a suspense movie. It's like there's things going on. It's like Ocean's Eleven. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, part of it. <laughs> sure. Part of it Kelly is Breaker's like part Breaker's of it is other things. But yeah, um, it's so good. If you like westerns at all, I really feel like you owe yourself to see this and and also Nomadland, which um, I guess we're going to talk about it some more. Yeah, soon. But first, Patches, your number one film, higher than I expected it to be. I don't watch many movies more than once ever, let alone like in the same year in the same time frame. And okay, Pauline Kale, get on with it. Oh, is that (laughs) that was her shtick? Thank you. I am. I am Pauline Kale. My generation (laughs) reincarnated. Yes. (laughs) Um, But this movie, I've watched three times in this in this year, and it is called Palm Springs, and it's my number one movie of the year. Cause it's just fucking great. great I don't movie. know. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I think we talked about it a bunch, but I couldn't believe. I mean, obviously, I Groundhog Day, one of my favorite movies of all time, the greatest movie of all time. Um, so I was not ready to like this. I was just like, I don't want to see people copying Groundhog Day. That's bullshit. Um, and yet, I think this finds a way to plus it. I think it finds something new to say by trapping two people in 
the repetition loop? At least two. At least two. Mm. Well, okay. No, no certainly three. At least, probably definitely four. three. Well, he's trying to be cagey. Yeah. Yes. Um, just enough explanation to make it wildly entertaining. But I, I really fell for these characters. I couldn't believe how much I was eating up Andy Samberg shtick. How much uh, I was <laughs> like getting just. Driven, like riled up by Kristen Milani's every move and how she was descending into this hell. Um, it's existential. It's funny uh, when they're running out with the, the bomb shtick with the cake. Every gag, uh, the, the music cues, the John Cale uh, Barracuda montage where they're spinning in circles with their middle fingers up. I don't know. I think it looks great. I, didn't, I did not see this at Sundance. Watch it at a screener. Then I watch it on Hulu. But I think it looks like, and maybe this has something to do with streaming culture and every movie looking like the worst three-point lighting television ever. It's like I got to see a real movie at home. Yeah. It was like astonishing the to see something that had a real script. The color movie is so well done. Yeah, like it's overhead like a, shots. It's such a big part of the story. Oh. <laughs> Palm Springs and 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 the mayhem they cause, even the like the scene where they're stealing the airplane. I'm just this, all these gags are so fun. I'm, I was laughing my ass off, and I think it reaches that poignant moment. I think it's a strong rom com with real relationships. I don't, I was totally. I fell so hard for this movie. We watched it again right away. We were so excited to share it with people and see them get surprised, even though they knew the twist. It doesn't matter. Um, the, the the twists, the fun parts are like everywhere these two wind up going. I, I it was a journey. I loved it. Good movie. Good yeah. movie. Is fun. it's like the opposite of the twenty twenty feeling Dave was talking about where like you realize you're gonna die, so how are you gonna spend it? It's like the oh you realize that your life is going I've to be been exactly dead the since same like day and March. Yeah. It's like kind of the <laughs> like the parallel opposite feeling that's also very present of like, all right, you're stuck. Like what do you do? Like and that like when you feel like you're completely stuck, how do you shake yourself out of it? Oh, but it would be, I mean, in some ways it would be horrible, but it would also be in terms of just like this, this valuable point, a stretch of our lives that is just disappearing. Uh, it would be really nice to know that at the end of it, if we were ever to get out, we would be back where we began and have that time newly available to us. But wow. given, uh, you know, given all that we've had to live through so far, I, I don't know. But if they that don't go back to time. the beginning in some ways. I mean, they're not, I don't, I don't think. Well, they, well, they, they haven't aged a year. They like haven't we aged. Have like the they've lived like a zillion, started. a zillion days and they are still uh, hot, young 30 somethings. So um, are you, David. That's the <laughs> 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 what, say. Uh, what a, that's a funny line. Uh, okay. Palm Springs. Good movie. Uh, my number one film update is also Kenny Miles number one hey coming through there we go it's Chloe Jaws Nomadland Frances McDormand as town is disbanded and she spends a year from Black Friday to Black Friday (laughs) chasing that nomad life living in a trailer learning how to do it well uh, with other trailer livers and I think um, giving a nice portrait of america i feel like me saying the most about nomadland isn't fair because we all picked nomadland somewhere on our list so who has uh the take of nomadland the take my here's the my take. take on nomadland i mean i think Frances mcdormand is pretty amazing in this movie but uh chloe Zhao's way of casting real people comes in such handy in this movie i love every conversation every scene that features real nomads 
talking about their lives, this kind of semi-documentary feel, Swanky and Linda and like all these people, it makes it feel rooted in in this deep reality. It do, this does exist. This is not fiction. Yes. This is not fiction. Even if it's a, a fictional setup that's leading us down this path. Like, Well, I also feel like the cinematography is aggressively telling you that because there are shots that are like walking around Frances McDormand as she covers a lot of ground in like one of these camps, like as the sun is disappearing behind uh, the, you know, the horizon line. So it's like, it's aggressively real. Yeah. I guess is how I would describe this movie. There's not any like dolly shots or any sort of like framings from inside a camper where it's obvious they like busted out the sidewall of the camper. When it's claustrophobic, it's claustrophobic. When it's open, it's open in a very unique way that feels like it wasn't planned. It was uh, surreptitiously captured. Uh, I'm very much in love with the way that this movie looks and feels more than but I'm it, in love with like its basic plot elements. But it also feels like, elements. you know, when, when the... the... U.S. government in the early 20th century was hiring photographers to go out to the West and like photograph real places so that we can uh, that we can merge art and history and and journalism to create something that will stand the test of time and and speak truth. It, it feels like that. There's, it's beautifully composed. I mean, this is a a film. This isn't shot on the fly like Borat or something. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful photograph film and um more power to chloe Zhao for for being able to accomplish that too with like i I don't know how much was scripted versus like impromptu um but you never feel like it's coming together on the fly right yeah it's not a casual movie in any way how many of our lists will chloe Zhao be on next year or eternals i don't know can you (laughs) pump out multiple eternal sequels uh all Eternals. No, Eternals ends up being like the Avatar. It's like, oh my god, Eternals made $2 billion. Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> it buffed Kumail Nanjiani was worth it the whole time. Um, well, like I was saying about First Cow, like it, this is also you know kind of a neo-Western in some ways, and it's about like carving out something good in this really harsh terrain. I mean, the, the present-day West is really different from what's in First Cow, but you've got all these people who have been kind of displaced from their lives by economic circumstances and then they are opting for something like completely out of the world that hasn't been good to them and there's a ton of romance in it but I think it's realistic about how hard it is and about how much of a sacrifice it is to do something like that um but you get the appeal of it like you know Francis McDormand and David Strathairn hanging out in like the Badlands like it looks incredible especially if you're not leaving your house it looks really incredible um, and they both like blend in so well. Like I didn't recognize David Strathairn until like halfway through the movie, um, which I don't know, maybe that's more of a me thing. That's um, a you thing. Yeah, he's like very David Strathairn. <laughs> he's here, so good fine. in this movie. I mean, and she's great in this movie too. Um, it just and like I think what Chloe did with um, the writer as well. Like she's just got patience and respect for the place that she is, and is like really not there to like tell a story about what it means, but kind of just like tell the story. Um, and not to me that there's no style to it, but she's so good to the people who she's putting at the center of her story. Yeah, I don't think there's a value judgment on any of these people, at least by the movie, which makes it so much more interesting because you're being like, this would be great, but also, are they sad? Or uh, am I just sad for them? Or is this like freedom? Yeah, I, I think the answer to all those questions is yes. Yeah, <laughs> all, all of it's yes. Uh, it's great. Nomadland. All right, it's time to cap it off with David Ehrlich's number one pick, which is also 
a movie that we all ranked somewhere. David, let's talk about time. Uh, yeah, it's a cool movie. Um, <laughs> time is, uh, I, I forget how, what we've already said about it, but, uh, Gareth Bradley's film is largely coupled together, not, not entirely by any stretch, but largely coupled together from, uh, the home video footage that was shot by this woman named, uh, Sybil Fox Richardson, who goes by the name of Fox Rich, uh, who is listed, I'm reading off the Wikipedia now, an entrepreneur, abolitionist, author, and mother of six, uh, which is quite a uh, series. What have you done to today? And not, <laughs> I, I, all I did today was try and raise money for Sybil <laughs> Fox Richardson. All right, all right. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, when she and her husband were much, much younger, they were both arrested um, for a botched robbery, and he went to prison for an exorbitant amount of time, and she... Uh, served three and a half years for a role in the robbery and then went home and began raising their, I believe it's five sons, six sons? Six. Uh, six sons, boy. Uh, I mean, that was uh, mind-boggling to me back in January when I saw this and had like a seven-week-old and now with a 13-month-old. She was uh, pregnant with twins when she got arrested. Yeah, I know. I mean, like in time, I just can't. The mind she raised them boggles. without her husband, yeah. which is incredible. Right, which is what they're, I mean, just to close the loop on something I said earlier, this is what uh, I was trying to raise money for today, is that she and Rob started a foundation called uh, the Rich Family Ministries, uh, which is part of, uh, you know, the the uh, defense fund around New Orleans and part of this like, larger network of nonprofits that seeks to provide and empower, like, provide resources for uh, and empower families as they work their way through the justice system such as it is and sort of systemically oppressed and uh, disempowered in Louisiana, New Orleans and around that area uh, and try to provide for them a lot of the support that Civil Fox Richardson did not have at her disposal and really had to uh, claw away for herself and so much of this incredible movie um, away from its artistic conceit and structural conceit it's really just about this woman's tenacity um, to to fight for her family, to fight for the restoration of her family um, and for her husband to come home. But just to start at like the, the biggest, most abstract level of what this movie does and how beautifully it does it, it is um, in a way that, you know, I referenced Tenet in relation to it earlier, but in a way that Christopher Nolan might appreciate. I mean, like this is an 81 minute movie that canvases 18 years or more uh, of these people being separated. And it does so by sort of, pinballing uh, through the years and collapsing time onto itself and occasionally at the end of the film, you know, time even running backwards um, to sort of call attention, not just to the, the let you feel time, but also the, the feeling of time lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think typically when rendering time, we think of longer movies and these sort of sequence shots that allow you to see things play out in real time. But there's something about the, the sort of, the the way that uh, Gareth Bradley punctures the flow of this movie and, and the holes that she pokes into the years and the the pieces that are missing from it that really give you the sense of the cost of this fight and what has been stolen from these people uh, you know who were convicted of committing a crime but you know gets into the circumstances around that crime and obviously the uh, especially and this has been galling all the while but especially in light of all the conversation around the the punishments that are going to be handed down to the people who stormed the Capitol last week, these exorbitant sentences uh, that really ruin families and communities around them that they comprise. 
Uh, and so I think in addition and to for a crime really, in which nobody was hurt, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, uh, and they weren't trying to steal a fucking dais from the Senate, you know, or the House of Representatives um, or try to murder anyone. They were inside trying that to matter. keep their store open. They were desperate to pay their bills. That's right. And, uh, you know, and there's 100 hours of home video footage that Foxford shot and um, there is new footage shot exclusively for the movie that is really essential to the alchemy of what Garrett Bradley cuts together. But um, that that home video footage really forms the core of this. This time is like a slipstream and we're sort of moving through it uh, as it's skipping along like a puddle on the surface of a lake. And and it just something about that that flow really gives you the sense of the, the weight of what's happened in the span that goes by in the blink of an eye much, you know, obviously the 18 years that uh, Rob spent in prison, I'm sure were excruciating, but um, there's also, I think at, like the way any long experience, the way that when restaurants open back up again to talk, like to bring this down to the most banal terms possible. And, and we go back to the streets, the movie theaters are open. It'll feel like everything, the world that we knew it was there just yesterday and that no time has elapsed at all. Um, and I think that gulf of what we've lost sort of has a way of getting away from us and just feels like a hollow in the pit of our stomach that we can't really give words to. Um, and all of it is sort of sewn together by this incredible score that was not at all written for the movie by a uh, nun who I believe is still alive in the 90s named Emma Hoyt Segway Mariam Guebrau, whose name I probably just butchered, uh, who wrote this sort of free-flowing, watery piano music to raise money for an orphanage, I believe, in uh, the 1960s, and that is the most perfect possible accompaniment to the feeling that Garrett Bradley is trying to conjure here, and it really just laces the whole thing together. It's a really extraordinary piece of filmmaking that also feels socially urgent in its way, um, and is you know not unlike never really, sometimes always, not this extraordinary. I mean, it's extraordinary what Fox Rich was able to do while her husband was incarcerated, but the plight of being, um, let's say a single mother because of, uh, you know, a black single mother whose husband partner is uh, in prison um, for an ungodly period of time for a crime that other people aren't you know, receiving nearly the same sentence for uh, is something that is all too common and uh, is not, it's sort of all too ordinary in its way. And I think the movie, tackles that as well um it's immensely moving and uplifting i think a movie like this every time i sort of showed uh, showing uh, talking about the movie or showing the, the video that i was making to lisa you know there's a feeling that something like this is gonna be a real downer um and it's certainly wrenching for the people involved but i think uh i don't know i think there, there's something immensely moving about the you know they in its totality they go through it absolutely unbroken, which is amazing to me. Or at least that's how like the film presents it. Like they have doubts, they have hard times. Above all, they are frustrated, but they never let the situation break them and they never abdicate responsibility. Anybody in the family. It's absolutely amazing. Well, they, and I'm hoping that the, oh, I I'm hoping that as our national conversation about prisons and abolition continues that we are actually making room for more of these movies. Because the thing I said earlier on the podcast about this doesn't actually get into becoming, a, I think, a straight abolitionist film. I think it's a particular story about resilience and about love and uh, you know, just kind of surviving. These are the stories, I think, that are much more effective empathy machines than something that is sort of like lecturing 
Um, even if that lecture is about truth, if we're living in like a post-fact society, which I hope we aren't, but maybe we fucking are. I read it in a lot of, uh, you know, for a lot of really smart people. It's stuff that time that is just about all of it. It's about the prisons. It's about motherhood. It's about persistence. It's about strength. It's about her own motivational speaking, uh, being able to spread the, the the message to others. She's such a powerful um, speaker, too. She's, she's amazing. Such yeah. A character. I, you know, I just want to, there's so many different facets of this movie. I mean, I've seen yeah. that Justin Chang, a friend was writing about, you know, how he was describing it as a sad movie about the weight of growing up without a father and how difficult it is to absorb that blow. I'm quoting his words verbatim on a day-to-day basis, uh, which is very much there. And, uh, you know, other people are writing about, obviously, and this is something that's very apparent, sort of its commentary in the prison industrial complex, which is baked into every element of the movie. Uh, but it's just so big. It's so dense, these 81 minutes and the things that they cover. And I, and that's, it's a testament yeah. to the editing. I mean, the, the fact that has been going around, and if you haven't heard much about the film, you may not have heard this, but... Um, Garrett Bradley started off just making this into a short documentary. She was just going to do kind of this like New York Times op doc profile of Sybil Fox Richardson. And then at the end, Rich gives her the bag of DV tapes, like 100 hours of tapes, and is like, oh, you want this footage of me? Um, And it's like, holy shit, this is the whole movie. Like, this is the movie. Uh, Why? And I love that the movie never asks or like, why are you recording all this stuff? Like, why are you doing this? It's clear why. Like, right. she was, preserve she was time. like a YouTuber before it existed, though. Like, she's talking to the camera. She's narrating her life. Like, she has a sense of an audience right, but to like, that, even before well, yeah, there but was her husband one. is the ultimate audience. Right. Oh, exactly. that's right. Yeah, document, she's making them for him. I forgot about for that. Someone who cannot yeah. enjoy it. Um, but the 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 immense amount of editing that you never think of. Uh, I was thinking about Dave's point before we got into this, which is like, is this enough of an abolitionist film? But the, the moments where it is are so striking and so precisely integrated into – it never loses sight of the characters. But then um, Sybil will bring up something like how they – after Katrina, they were like, we thought he'd get out after Katrina because everything was so devastated that they had to cut – they would have to cut – funding to the prisons and people would have to get let go just out of circumstances to pay for everything else but no actually louisiana cut education and all these other things in order to keep people right. and incarcerated that's, but, but that's in a scene what a fucked fact. that's in a scene for that's in a scene for a group of uh family members who have people who are incarcerated they get together on father's day yeah. And that's what makes the scene fucking heartbreaking yeah. is she's spitting facts and everything to but other people the purpose of the scene in that. the movie is yeah yeah, she couldn't. She she decided to be there with the community because she you knows she didn't want to go up to the prison on Father's Day. Also, the Day way again. the movie profiles the the sons, it, it's not getting into every single son. We're not. This isn't necessarily even about every single one. And maybe some of them didn't participate. But like the twins that she had when she got arrested, we see them and how this has been devastating. They don't know their dad at all. Like where she, but they been do. For them they to have a back. relationship with him, which they is do, the other thing that I find remarkable about they it. They only have a relationship with him through this system. Yeah, no, no. It's a hor- I mean, it's a horrible way to know your father, but like the work that she has done to make sure that her children know their father to the extent that they can is also really amazing. But the, the, and the way that their two personalities have kind of split in different directions that seem to be based on their feelings and reactions to this situation is fascinating. One of them being 
full on into politics. He's like a sophomore in high school giving speeches. I can oh only my imagine. God. Like, holy shit. He this sounds guy's like be a, a mini Obama. Like he's got this like cadence. He like he's like just full. He is so prepared and he's got braces and you see him like giving this like composed speech with his braces on. A young person who feels like such in the post Obama mold. Like I feel like he learned everything. Yeah. He really like picked it all up and it, it's a, he's an amazing person. Um, and then his brother is just like this introverted uh artistic type who's like practicing his french with his mom and that stuff is heartbreaking too i just the way what what you expect from families that are together and not destroyed by the system it's like so much is lost and these people have been so impacted by this and it's character 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 and the movie never loses focus of that for for issues and i i watched this i actually woke up a, a little while ago uh like 4 a.m and i'm like oh finally i have time to watch time because this is a shorter movie <laughs> and so i watched it as the sun was coming up the end of the movie was playing and i was just bawling my eyes out i really i don't cry that much when i'm at home watching a movie but like this movie destroyed me man i cried uh, the most time yeah. at, at movies this year i think out of all years of me watching movies whether it be stuff like the end of hamilton which i knew i was fucking gonna cry at or whether it be stuff like time or wolf walkers or just like you know dumb other television or rewatching movies and being un- un- surprised by it I did a lot of movie crying in 2020. Um, was there something going on emotionally that uh, made you feel more raw than usual? Yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, maybe I'm getting old. If maybe you, that's what's happening. If you have seen Time uh, or if you take it, this podcast is a cue to go watch Time and you liked it and you would like to help out what uh, the Fox Rich Ministries are doing down in New Orleans, you can find me on Twitter. I have started a fundraiser. We have, uh, I am very. Uh, grateful to say it hit our goal of raising $10,000 for the ministry, uh, which is I, I don't, I, whatever religious affiliation it has is the name of their nonprofit. Uh, and that's amazing. But the more money we can raise for them, the more resources that families uh, in that area are going to have to pursue their legal battles that and the support they need. And it's going to empower them to, to wage a fight. And uh, it's really important. So if you feel like giving, I would love to help. We're going to link to it. Oh, if great. you could tell people to go to fightinginthewarroom.com to the top tens post to click the link instead of telling people to go to your Twitter, which is constantly refreshing. Oh. I'm sure you have better things to do. Oh, but you are on a podcast that goes to thousands of people every week that can maybe donate <laughs> to mm. this number one movie mm. of 2020 here on this podcast. Fighting in the War Room Top 10s. Fightinginthewarroom.com. We're going to put it there. There's going to be a GoFundMe link that David is organizing. It's going to go to a very good cause. Plus, you could see a list of all these movies. You could search our other episodes for when we reviewed these movies and had in-depth conversations with them. And you could find the rest of our work around the internet here. Katie, people, where can people find more of your work? Holy shit, Dave. How do I follow up a cavalcade of efficient information like that? Uh, I'm at VanityFair.com and on the Little Gold Men podcast... I don't know. That's all. And on Twitter at Katie Miss- Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-C-H. Sorry, that's not all. <laughs> Mr. Matt Patches. Uh, yeah, find me at Polygon overseeing all that and great writers there and uh, at Mr. Patches on Twitter still somehow. We're still on the platform and uh, at Parlor. No, I'm just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Letterbox.com's David Ehrlich. 
<laughs> Are they signing my paychecks now? Uh, <laughs> you can. I. I am not uh, Letterboxd's uh, property. Uh, I belong to You're the Joe Wire. Camel of Letterboxd. I, I am the Joe Camel of Letterboxd. That's how uh, my ch- my children refer to me. Um, you can find me. What am I? What I, I work for IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh You can find the the video countdown where you have my whole top twenty five and not just my pathetic top ten. And you don't have to hear me talking about any of them. You can just watch the movie speak for themselves, which is endlessly preferable. I think everyone would agree. Uh, on Vimeo, I'm sure Dave can put the link in our show notes. Uh, and find all of us together on iTunes, most importantly, at Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show, except for on our top ten episodes and our quarter quells, because those are ours. Those are our <laughs> special shows. Except for that call-in one we did. That was your special show. <laughs> and I want to do another one. <laughs> I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at TA7E. You can find us at fightinginthewarroom.com where you could click that very special link and uh, put your money where time's mouth is. Or just watch the movie. Uh, it's been a shitty year, but we'll see you next year. In with, 2022. Uh, 2022. <laughs> uh No. We'll be fine. We'll see you next year, uh, next week, um, to pre-hash with the normal episode, uh, a possible upcoming second coup. You know, it'll be fine. Oh boy. See you guys later. Bye. Love you. Don't fall down. To see the name of the ship was a belly of tea. The winds blew up her bird up turn up below my bully boy's boat. Soon day the woman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tongue in his tongue will take her leave and go. Soon day the woman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tongue in his tongue will take her leave and go. We had not been two weeks from shore when turn on our right wheel. Now I'm done. I'm done. We're done.